So. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I hope this isn't a wreck when you're editing it. Rich. It'll be fine. Don't worry. Okay. Steven, how are you feeling? Uh, Just like the old days. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember it being this, uh, this disjointed, I think. It, it'll come together. I was kind of wondering, are they, are they all like this now? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I like, what happened after I left? <laughs> <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Gregos81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month we are joined by an old friend as Disposed Hero returns to the playcast to discuss our game of the month, Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. Upon its release, this game was not what people expected in a sequel, but over the years the game has garnered a huge amount of respect from gamers. Is it well deserved, or should you sneak past this one? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at TheSingleBanana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Broken by 
So as of yesterday, I've got a bear in my neighborhood. So that's been fun. It's good. First the snakes, then the bears. <laughs> it's always the bears. That's the way it was in the Bible, right? Right. I think so. <laughs> the plague of bears. I do remember that. Yeah. They drove Pharaoh and the Egyptians mad. Did you find out about the bear on the next door app or did you actually see it? Oh, you're very astute. I did find out about it on the next door app. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, that and uh, my neighbor, Game Rulers, no account dad, actually called me at work to let me know and sent pics. He had seen it on next door, I think, and we were chuckling about it. I actually had to go pick up his trash in his yard because I think the bear got into his trash. So. It wasn't a lot, but uh, I know he listens to the show, so I'll just let him know that he owes me for that. Steven, are, are there a lot of bears in your neck of the woods? I don't think so. I've never seen any, but uh, I guess you never know. Yeah. There were a lot of bears in New Jersey where I used to live because we lived in... Really? The, yeah, we lived in the woods, man. We lived in a pretty rural... It's like rural slash suburban area, and uh, bears were an issue. A lot of people actually bought these bear-proof garbage cans that have like a screw on top that the bears can't get into the garbage cans. I've seen that. You're just blowing my mind about New Jersey right now. I had no idea. I thought it was just all like cityscapes, no rural areas whatsoever. So that's interesting, man. But I guess you guys kind of butt up close to Vermont, New Hampshire, and those areas where I would expect to find bears. Yeah, you won't often catch me defending New Jersey, but it is a little known fact. There are some very, very beautiful areas, and it's not just the stereotype of, you know, suburbs of New York, lesser cities to New York City kind of areas. But yeah, we lived in the woods, man. I don't know how any... you If you saw where we lived, you might think you were in Pennsylvania. It's that kind of area. Hmm, very cool. Does Bon Jovi own all the natural areas in New Jersey? I don't know. That's so stupid. (laughs) I will say that, uh, you know, when Jersey Shore got really big, you remember that TV show with Snooki and... Oh, oh, unfortunately, yes, I do. So that was shot in uh, Seaside Heights, which is a boardwalk kind of beach town in New Jersey. And my mom used to take me there all the time when I was a kid, so... It's kind of funny that Seaside became like so famous through that show. And it's like, that's where I used to hang out when I was a kid. So It's a shame the bears didn't eat those people. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Steven, bears down in Georgia? I'm pretty sure there's not. Um, I've never seen or heard about any bears in the area. So I don't don't think so. I don't think that's a problem here. Okay. I think your next YouTube video should be uh, Ode to the Bears. I mean, yeah, I look yeah, into yeah. it for sure. Do you want him to sing a song to your bears? Because he, he doesn't mean, have any. Or, you know, <laughs> the the fact that there's actually bears in New Jersey as well. If you can work that in, too, that would be good. Uh, go to the zoo. Yeah, I'll do put it on research. my list. <laughs> This episode is off to a great start. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Uh, so if new listeners do not recognize the voice on our show, it is the one, the only former member of the RF Generation Playcast and great friend of the show and site RF Generation, the guy that gives Sean and I super awesome game buying deals, Mr. Disposed Hero, Stephen. <laughs> How's it going, man? 
Yeah, pretty good. It feels good to be back. Haven't been on here in a while. Get your sea legs again. Yeah, I know. Well, speaking of bears being assholes, let's point out mistakes our whole friends pointed out, Sean. This is kind of a um, an odd time for sure because we've got one episode in the can that is being edited right now, so it hasn't officially gone out yet. So I guess we can say we're pretty clean this show since no one's actually listened to the new show yet. It'll be a double feature next time we record. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff in that episode because it was a pretty hefty one with uh, Bill, our guests. We'll see. We'll get double dipped for that episode and this episode the next time we do corrections, which is fine. Yeah, any corrections for Earth Defense Force? I mean, if you want to make it three in a row, I mean, you can, you can go ahead and do that. I believe I talked enough about Earth Defense Force in the previous episode, so I'll touch on it a little bit when we get to what are you playing, but I definitely don't have any further clarifications to make on the series. All right, wonderful. Well, I guess that means we can go ahead and roll into the concert cast for the month. And before I make the mistake of getting into it like I did last month, Sean or Steven, have you guys gotten any tickets recently for any shows? Um, I haven't. I've actually not been a uh, big concert goer in the past. Um, I'm always tempted because bands I really like will come through and then I just, I don't know, just never buy anything. I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've actually been to a show in my life, but... uh, yeah, I've heard of some good stuff coming through. Um, Metallica's coming through. Um, nice. Uh, I was disappointed. I, I know Megadeth was planning on coming through uh, before COVID hit with um, Trivium and In Flames and Lamb of God. And oh, wow. That seemed like a really good show. And then uh, when that got postponed, I think they canceled the Atlanta date because they just posted the new tour dates and Atlanta's not on there. So, uh, yeah, I don't have anything in mind, but we'll see. Very cool. Sean, you? Anything since last time? Unfortunately, no. Nothing has popped up. I'm... Trying to be kind of responsible with my money and only pick shows that people would go with me to them. For example, I hate to say this, Rich, but Slay Bells is playing the Mohawk and I'm tempted to go, but nobody wants to go with me. Or I should put it this way. My wife doesn't want to go with me and Corey can't go with me. He said he very much would want to, but he won't be in town around that time. So yeah, there you go. I'm probably not going to buy tickets for Slay Bells, but that was one that was on my radar. Yeah, that would be a good show. That's interesting. I wonder if they're playing locally here. I'll have to uh, definitely check that out because I've never seen them before. So uh, yeah, that would be a great show. Mm. Yeah, myself, nothing since our last recording as well. Like I said, that was only a few weeks ago. Still haven't bought my tickets for that Outlaw Music Festival with Willie Nelson and Chris Stapleton, Sturgill Simpson. Uh, Lucinda Williams at all. It's a full day long festival, but we are actually planning on going. And I don't know if I mentioned this on the last episode, but lawn seats are like 45 bucks, which is a steal for all the great talent that's going to be there. And to spend a full day at a show is something I haven't done since I was a kid and uh, went to Lollapalooza. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Well, let's go ahead and get into our concert cast topic for this month. What we came up with is something a little different. We decided to do a draft, and we are focusing this month on grunge music. And so what we're going to do is we're going to each take a turn going one at a time. We pre-selected the draft order before the show. Sean is picking last, and he actually generated the number, so he can't blame anyone but himself for that. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, um, of course, uh, we can't do a top five. So we're saying each person gets a total of six picks. Once that album is picked, it cannot be picked by anyone else. No picking of compilations or live albums. And to clarify, compilations are basically albums where there are multiple groups on that album. Trades are allowed during and after the draft. So if someone picks something that you really want and they've got something that you know they pick just to get on your nerves, then you can make that trade. A week after the show comes out, our listeners will vote to see who has the best list of albums. I know we talked about maybe making the losers do something, but I thought, hmm... If we did that on the show, that wouldn't be very good because there's probably a lot of people out there that really hate Sean and I that would just want to see us have to do something (laughs) stupid. So uh, if you're voting on this, please pick the best list and the person that wins will just get bragging on us. did the draft order it looks like our guest steven's going first i will be going second and sean will be going third so this is our top six grunge albums so steven what is your first pick i think you guys already know what it is for Mm -hmm. me there was just one album that just was head and shoulders above the rest that i had to go with and that is going to be alice in chains dirt it's probably not a surprise. I think I even posted a picture of my vinyl. You uh, did. That's why I knew so, what it was. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I was listening to it. I was trying to get back to listening to my vinyl records because I kind of just have been neglecting that for a long time. So I wanted to get back into spinning those. But I mean, I think that's just a really incredible album. And really, when I talk about grunge, grunge isn't exactly my wheelhouse. I didn't really grow up during that era when that music was popular. And 
I've listened to some of it here and there, but it's mostly just sort of the uh, the bigger songs that you'll hear on the radio. You know, I enjoy it, but other than a couple of the bands, it's not something I've really gone on my way to listen to much. But Alice in Chains, I really went down the rabbit hole um, a few years ago, and it was just, they were like the only band I listened to for a few months there. And uh, for me, uh, Dirt is just a really great album, so many good songs. And uh, I could put a couple of other Alice in Chains albums up here right up top, but I think I'm going to try to spread it out a little bit. But uh, yeah, for me, it's got to be Dirt. Awesome, man. Wonderful pick there. Do you have a favorite song off that album? You know, I thought about that. I think it might be Wood, yeah, uh, which is which is the closing track. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's um, that, you know, Rooster, um, Down in a Hole, uh, even like some of the little bit deeper cuts, like uh, Rain When I Die and Damn That River, just like really good songs. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think I, if I had to choose, I'd go with Wood. Yeah, I definitely think it's probably the best Alice in Chains album. And for me, Alice in Chains is one of those bands, when I think about grunge, I don't really associate grunge music with Alice in Chains, though they are a grunge band. I always look at them sort of like a rock and roll band, just sort of the band that sort of bridged the gap for rock music during that time. Whereas some grunge music isn't really relevant and, you know, I don't enjoy listening to to this day. I definitely enjoy listening to everything by them. So uh, great pick, man. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go second and hoping that maybe I'm stealing Sean's pick here, but I don't think I am. I don't think so either. Yeah, I probably am not, but since it's a girl band, I think I could be. And uh, that album is L7's Bricks Are Heavy. Excellent choice. Yeah, it's such a good album. And again, L7's one of those bands that when you think about grunge and that sort of slow droning sound, I kind of feel like L7 doesn't really fit into that as much. They've kind of evolved from the punk era And so a lot of their songs are very, very punk and fast and great. This album is friggin' fantastic, and I wanted to pick it first because I did not want to miss out on it. A few of the tracks that I really enjoy, Orgasm, Diet Pill, Everglade, List, and This Ain't Pleasure are uh, some of my favorite tracks. But the whole damn album is solid. If you dig punk music and you dig like an all-female band with some just great heavy sound, L7, Bricks Are Heavy is a fantastic album and you should definitely check it out. All right, Sean, what you got for your first pick, man? So this is so cool and I am having so much fun already. I was actually like on pins and needles uh, (laughs) over these first picks because my first pick is incredibly special to me (laughs) right now and... uh, I kind of knew what Steven was going to pick, as we noted. Rich, I didn't see that coming, L7, for your number one pick. I definitely had something else in mind. And just for the record, it was in the consideration for my list, but you didn't really steal anything by picking that album. So I'm actually happy that that's your number one pick. And that leaves me an opportunity to stick with my number one pick, which when we were texting earlier today and it was like, my list is basically my number one pick and then everything else. Like I care about this album so much and I don't think it's going to be what you are expecting, Rich, because I know that when we talk about grunge, like when I was growing up, I was an obsessive Nirvana fan, but uh, as a matter of fact, my number one album is not Nirvana. That's maybe later down the draft. My number one album and I'm on the record in a few places, I think, maybe this podcast, maybe the blog, maybe some past blogs I've done as saying that this is the best album of the grunge era. So it's not something I just pulled out of my ass today. 
It's Super Unknown by Soundgarden. Awesome. My number one pick. I was listening to it today and man, it it was really hitting me hard, man. I can already feel like the emotions coming up. I was at work today and I was listening to Fell on Black Days and uh, it it was just getting to me. I was like losing it emotionally. And uh, I mean, I know why, but I'm not like this Chris Cornell devotee. The lyrics were really hitting me and I feel like this is an album, besides Fell on Black Days being such a brutal song, there was five hit singles off this album. It was really mm-hmm. a, a very successful album. Black Hole Sun, uh, Spoon, Man. Spoon Man, Kickstand. You had, the Day I uh, Tried to Live. The Day I Tried to Live, My Wave. This album, it, it has a lot of also deep cuts. Like The third song, Mailman, is, is probably a lesser known song, but the vocal delivery on that is also just heart-wrenching. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad I got this in as my number one, and now I'm just going to wing it for the rest. And uh, <laughs> I don't care if I win or whatever. But yeah, I can't express enough. Like, There's going to be a lot of dead, unfortunately, people on this list. But I mean, again, yeah. I was never like this obsessive Chris Cornell or Soundgarden person when I was younger. But uh, knowing that he dealt with addiction and depression and ended up taking his life uh, was really really beating me up today so i love this album and and uh that's my number one yeah um i would say my favorite two voices from the grunge era would be chris cornell and lane staley i just don't think they're two better voices and probably didn't appreciate chris cornell as much during the time of the grunge era but uh, i remember seeing the movie singles and he's got a few tracks on that where he's not with soundgarden and uh, those tracks are incredible too super unknown was actually on my list man so uh, you beat me to that pick but i've got a backup so that's not really a problem for me (laughs) all right all right number two steven what do you have all right so like I said before, grunge isn't exactly my wheelhouse, so my method for sort of like constructing my list was going on Spotify and looking at the different uh, you know popular grunge bands and their albums and which the songs had the most like plays and the ones that had like millions or tens of millions. I knew those were the popular songs, so I would just kind of sample those. A lot of those were the ones that I could recognize, and so I kind of had to construct my list of albums around that, like which albums had like the most of those songs on it, because I just wasn't familiar with the rest of it. But uh, I was kind of surprised what my number two pick ended up being because out of all the uh, popular grunge bands, I always thought this was my least favorite. But um, my number two pick is going to be Stone Temple Pilots Core. Cool. Nice. Because, um, yeah, I was, I was looking through the songs that I like hearted on here and it's like half the album. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> other than some Alice in Chains stuff, I can't really say that about. It's funny that I'll go on these and like I won't recognize the song titles like Plush, for instance. I, I was like, what is that? But it had like <laughs> hundreds of millions of listens on uh, Spotify and I click on it. And as soon as like the first like two chords, I'm like, oh, I've heard this. You know? <laughs> yeah, they're most was, famous. Was a lot song, of stuff. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff like that. And uh, yeah. you know, it was just like half this album was just like really killer stuff. And uh Maybe the rest of it's really good, too. I'm not really uh, sure what the rest of these songs are, but um, yeah, just some really good like top-tier songs just uh, really stuck out to me on that one. Yeah, it's a good album. I went through a phase where I was listening to that in purple for like two weeks straight. I believe this song is on core, but Wicked Garden is one of my favorite songs off of that. It's really yeah, that's cool on there. track. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, my uh, next pick... 
once again, much like L7, I feel like could be argued that this album is a lot more punk than it is grunge, but it was on Wikipedia as, uh, as one of the bands from the grunge era. Sadly, like most bands, this band is no longer together for uh, nefarious reasons, but um, it wasn't due to any sort of suicide or drug addiction, but the lead singer of this band was um, actually murdered. And um, I actually watched an episode of, I believe it was Forensic Files, a few weeks ago about this murder. And uh, it turned into a cold case for a while, and they caught her killer several years after the incident. But my number two pick is an album called Frenching the Bully by The Gits. I'd first heard of The Gits... When I was listening to that midnight show that Eddie Vedder did that time that I have mentioned on this show a few times in the past, but just an incredible female lead, fast, vicious album, an album that attacks a lot of things that we think of as societal norms, but looking at it from the perspective that a lot of women in our world face few um, standout tracks from this album, uh, Another Shot of Whiskey, Insecurities, Slaughter of Bruce. It All Dies Anyway, When You're Twisting, I'm Still Breathing, and Second Skin. It was hard not to pick every song on this album as some of my favorite tracks. It's so good. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to this album, but um, if you haven't, I would say uh, be sure to grab a copy of it or uh, put it on your Spotify. Nice. I actually, in researching this, listened to... I believe I listened to a different album by them, but I definitely enjoyed it, so... I will have to check this one out going forward. Yeah, man, I think it would check all the boxes for you, man. I think you would definitely love this album. All right, Sean, uh, what's your next pick? All right, well, now I'm going to prioritize things I don't want to get stolen because I do have a few. <laughs> this is a lot different approach than I have done in the past because there's this like competitive element to it. So... A lot of times I'm like, all right, let me find some weird like Japanese stuff that I can tell people about that nobody's ever heard about. But here I'm like, all right, I got to nail these heavy hitters to get them on my list so you guys can't steal them. So I'm going to go with In Utero next by Nirvana. This came out in 1993. It was Kurt Cobain and Nirvana's kind of answer to their success with Nevermind. Kurt always felt that Nevermind was way too slickly produced. And although he liked the songs, he was not a big fan of the production. So they hired Steve Albini to produce this album. He's a very eccentric kind of character in the punk world and a very well-known album producer. And a matter of fact, he's a producer for hire. I don't know if he still is to this day, but there was a time in the recent future where you could just book him and record with him. He also did PJ Harvey's album Dry. He did Pixie Surfer Rosa. So he's done some amazing albums, but he did Nirvana's In Utero. Uh, and I think, again, not to talk Steve Albini up too much, and he would not like that because he always says the album is the product of the band and not me kind of thing. But his production is key to this album. What I love about it is Kurt Cobain's idea with this album was to alienate the teeny boppers who had kind of come on to hearing Nirvana on the radio from Smells Like Teen Spirit. So the album is very like brash and noisy. There's a ton of feedback. There's a song Radio Friendly Unit Shifter is one of my favorites because it just has this grinding feedback throughout the entire <laughs> song. And I actually like noisy music, maybe in part because of this album, but 
that kind of stuff, I just, I love it. I let it absorb right into me. Uh, some people may actually find it very like discordant and uncomfortable, but I love it. Heart Shaped Box is on this album, Penny Royalty, All Apologies, a lot of the hits. Rate Me's on Yeah, there, Rate Me. A lot of known songs are on this album. But again, what makes this album great is that the deeper cuts are also great. So I can't say this about every album on my list, but for Super Unknown and for Inutero, I can listen to both of these albums front to back without skipping a single track. So yeah, Inutero, I think is... I don't know if I would say it's Nirvana's best album, but it's certainly my favorite by far. So that's my number two pick in the draft. And if you're growing up during the grunge era and you bought an Udra at Walmart, you actually got treated to the track Waif Me right. instead of Rape Me. And, the, and there was alternate back cover art on the Walmart version as well. Ah, interesting. Kurt did this art with like weird dolls that look like fetuses it's very off-putting and disturbing so walmart censored that kind of famously yeah 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 don't up sam walton's idea of america (laughs) right don't you do it (laughs) (laughs) all right steven what is your third pick sir all right so years ago this is probably like back in 2009 that's when i first started kind of dipping my toe into grunge music and the two bands that i was kind of sampling at the time was alice in chains and soundgarden and there were just like really a few songs from each so i'm going to kind of go back to that for my next pick i'm going to go with soundgarden bad motor finger damn it albums. had a feeling <laughs> um but yeah i mean rusty cage and outshine in particular just uh Two really cool songs. Those are the ones that really jumped out at me a long time ago. And also Jesus Christ Pose is another one that I've listened to over the years. And I'm not too overly familiar with the rest on here, but I'm kind of sampling through it a little bit. It sounds like pretty good stuff. But uh, I remember Rusty Cage um, from Road Rash on the PS1. Nice. Nice. (laughs) That was like one of the first uh, PS1 games I ever played. I didn't know what the song was at the time. I was really young. And uh, when I was listening to it later, I was like, oh, is that song from Road Rash? And uh (laughs) This is a cool album and some really cool songs on it. Very cool, man. Um, If you get a chance, check out a track called Room a Thousand Years Wide. It's a really heavy track. It's really, really awesome. And then um, I just wanted to say about Rusty Cage, there is a uh, really awesome cover that was done by Johnny Cash on, I believe it was the American Recordings 3. Yeah, I think I've heard that With Rick Rubin. Yeah, Yeah, very, very good cover of that song. But uh, yeah. You can't beat the original, though, man. That song is, is kicking mm-hmm. ass. Really good pick, man. Dang it. I still want <laughs> All right. So, hmm. Now I'm in this odd spot where there's, like, bands that I want to pick, but I want to win this contest, too. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So, for my next pick... This is a band I've mentioned going to see in concert before and being one of the worst shows that I've ever been to in my life, and I still stand by that. But I still think Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins is one of the best grunge albums ever made. I remember seeing the Smashing Pumpkins for the first time on an episode of Saturday Night Live and then playing the song Today, which is on this album, and just being obsessed with that song and primarily buying the album just for that song, but falling in love with the entire thing. I don't think anyone has ever really matched Billy Corrigan's voice. It's a very effeminate sounding, but it's, it's really, really awesome. Favorite tracks 
on this album for me are Quiet, Hummer, Rocket, Disarm, Soma, and Geek USA. The cover of this album was prominently featured on my wall during high school as one of the few posters I had in my room along with a really awesome white zombie poster. But uh, as far as the Smashing Pumpkins are concerned, I know people prefer Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, but I don't think Siamese Dream is an album that can be topped, and that's why it's my number three pick. That's a great pick, and we are, in a good way, stretching the boundaries of what I thought grunge would be considered (laughs) especially yours rich like even with l7 like you were saying they're kind of like a punk band from la but i'm not arguing with your pick they do fit into this and i was thinking about same thing with like stone temple pilots were from california smashing pumpkins are more like a psychedelic rock band from chicago however i totally endorse this pick and uh i love this album as well i would say mayonnaise is the highlight track for me that's a good one Yeah. yeah So, all right. So I guess it's my turn now. Let's look at my list here. Rich, there's one group in particular that I'm surprised you haven't pulled yet. Mm. You know who it is. I might. Okay. I might not. And if I do, I'm not going <laughs> to tell you who it is because she'll steal it. All right. Let's go with Mud Honey Piece of Cake from 1992. So Mud Honey is like, they're kind of like the also rans <laughs> like they were so close to being like as famous as nirvana and soundgarden like they're mm-hmm. in that conversation but for some reason they never really really broke into the mainstream their biggest hit was a song that's not on this album it's on an early album called touch me i'm sick which might have been in that movie as well singles yeah there's a reference to it in that movie matt Dillon plays the main character but he's sitting around with stone gossard and eddie vetter and they formed this band called Citizen Dick, and they changed the name of it to Touch Me, I'm Dick. <laughs> so <laughs> Okay, so that's definitely a reference. But Mud Honey does have a song on the single soundtrack, I do believe, but I don't think that one is it. But gotcha. you know, gotcha. that might come up corrections next time. So there it is. So Piece of Cake came out a little bit later. This is a 1993 album. Oh, I'm sorry. It's 1992. The biggest hit off this album is uh, it's called Suck You Dry. This is probably not anybody else's favorite Mud Honey album, but I have this thing where sometimes the first album I hear from a band ends up being my favorite. That happens a Agreed. lot. Agreed, yeah. So this album just has a lot of weird interlude songs like they do these weird like techno songs in the middle of the album and they have a really good drummer i'm kind of failing to mention beyond the front men of the band like kurt cobain and chris cornell like you know kim thale of soundgarden is an amazing guitar player and whatnot but in mud honey i think their secret weapon is their drummer danny peters he actually played drums for nirvana very briefly and played drums on the song sliver which is uh, a Nirvana song, kind of lesser hit of theirs. But he has this awesome drumming style of doing these crescendoing and decrescendoing fills. So when he does a drum roll, he'll start it softly and build it in volume. And you don't hear that a lot, either in punk or, you know, in grunge. So I really like his drumming style. And 
piece of cake again maybe not the best mud honey album to start with a lot of people would prefer super fuzz big muff or every good boy deserves fudge like those are some of their other like more well-loved albums but piece of cake has always been my favorite so that's my number three and correct me if i'm wrong or maybe we'll correct ourselves on the next show if i'm wrong but didn't that band evolve from uh, a punk band called Green River? That's correct. Yeah, Green River was one of the original Seattle bands. They're members of Pearl Jam in that band and Mud Honey. Uh, yeah, definitely. Awesome. All right, Stephen, what is your number four pick? All right, so my next one is going to be uh, Candlebox's self-titled first album. Nice. Um, Candlebox is a band that I... I don't know if I'd ever really heard of them until just a few years ago. I heard the song Far Behind on the radio. And uh, my local rock stations are actually pretty good. They play a good mix of stuff from like the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. And one of them more geared towards like classic rock. But even they've kind of been getting more into like grunge era stuff. But yeah, I heard this song on the radio and uh, just really put the band on my radar. I really like the song. And uh, quite a few good songs on this first album. Um, you know, Far Behind, There's You, Cover Me. Um, those are all kind of familiar ones that I really enjoy. And they're kind of just sampling through it. I just like the overall sound of the album and, you know, the sound they have here. And uh seems like really good stuff. But yeah, that's my next pick. What was their big hit? Did you mention that? Um, I think was it Far, Far Behind? Behind was their biggest. Yeah. yeah. I think it was either yeah. that or You. Um, the You was a big one, I think. It's funny, man. I never thought of Candlebox as being a grunge band. But, of course, you know, when I look at lists, they always show up. And I think because I'd never really listened to them except for their hits. And the few hits that got radio play really don't sound like grunge songs. They're more like rock songs, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of them, but I'm actually kind of a, like a cheerleader for Candlebox because they were kind of sidelined as a one hit wonder and people didn't realize like they were a Seattle band that had like really paid their dues and they didn't get what they deserved, basically. Absolutely. So we're at number four. Oh, strategy, strategy. Um, I got to <laughs> pick this one next because this might be the band that Sean's saying that he can't believe I haven't picked an album from yet. And he knows that I love this band. The lead singer, she gets a lot of shit. And I I realize why she does. But if I was making an actual top six list on my own, I might put this at number one or at least number two. And that's Holes Live Through This. I love this album. As I've gotten older and I'll go back and listen to grunge albums every once in a while. But this is one that I will constantly put on year after year and can listen to all the way through. Just like the Gits, she covers a lot of topics that are very feminine and, you know, things that uh, females, you know, have to deal with. It's good to hear a different perspective and, you know, a lot of anger and resentment. I actually saw Hole in concert and it was one of the best performances that I've ever seen. I know that can be hit or miss a lot of times from what I understand, but... uh, Live Through This is just an incredible album. Violet, Miss World, Asking For It, Plump, Doll Parts, Rockstar, all great songs. But again, one that you can play all the way through. I don't know if you guys know who Olivia Rodriguez is or not. She's a pop musician that actually my daughter really loves to listen to. But she's been in the news recently for uh, doing a cover of a girl in a prom dress with makeup running down her face, holding flowers. 
And really the only difference is, is it's a full body shot and the person on the cover seems sad, not ecstatic like the girl on the cover of Live Through This. But uh, Courtney Love has raised a stink about this album cover. So uh, it is in the news recently. Yeah. Can I jump in on that? Cause yeah, absolutely. This. So it's uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Rodrigo, I'm yeah. sorry. All good. Finn McKenty, the punk rock M- MBA on YouTube, did a great video on this because Courtney Love just can't keep to herself. So Courtney Love called out Olivia Rodrigo for this similarity uh, in an Instagram post, kind of put the pictures together and said, oh, look, you know, twinsies, <laughs> notice any differences or whatever. So Olivia Rodrigo commented on that and said, hey, I'm a big fan, love live through this, love whole, like very respectful. And uh, Courtney Love couldn't leave well enough alone and took it to the next level. And, you know, I don't want to get into what a horrible person she is. But again, I highly recommend Finn McKenty's video about it. It's a quick video, just kind of running down the situation and him having the right opinion on it, which is that Courtney Love should shut up because she's a horrible person. And Kurt Cobain probably came up with that picture idea anyway. So. <laughs> like supposedly he wrote this album or most of it, right? Well, in this video, he goes into the origin of the cover of Live Through This was an homage to the movie Carrie. Yeah. So it's like, who's copying who? Like your idea for this album cover was from something else. And Olivia Rodrigo, there's no evidence that she just copied your stuff. Having a sad girl in a prom dress holding flowers is not the absolute most unique original idea <laughs> that's ever been thought of. You know what I mean? Sure. Sorry, I'm going off a tangent here, but but you, <laughs> you kind of threw me a bone and I'm it's something that's fresh in my mind. So <laughs> Yeah, I want you to shut up and make your fourth pick. <laughs> All right. Unlike Courtney Love, I'll drop it and move along with my life. <laughs> Good segue. So actually, Hole was not the band. Like, I wouldn't put Hole on my list. I used to really like them. But uh, the band I thought you were going to put on your list, and I'm tired of waiting for you to take it, is Pearl Jam. <laughs> and the album that I'm going to pick is Versus. Mm-hmm. Pearl Jam Versus, 1993. Pearl Jam's early stuff is just so good. Listening to it now, it's a little bit, I don't know what the word is, but like when they try to get political, it's a little bit misguided and kind of cringy for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's more than one song about police brutality on there, which is more than relevant right now. So Mm -hmm. I guess I could say I disagree with them on certain very specific things that they wrote songs about on this album. Uh, And I'll leave it at that. But you got daughter, you got elderly woman behind the counter of a small town or whatever it's called. Like Mm -hmm. there's some great hits on this. I always love this album because uh, I always thought the cover looked like a Pink Floyd cover because it's kind of similar. (laughs) Again, maybe like animals (laughs) like Olivia. And there's a song called animal on here. (laughs) Right, right. So I don't know if that was homage, but growing up, I always loved Pink Floyd and I loved animals. So when this album came out, I was like, oh, that it almost looks like animals. And I remember distinctly when the album came out, it was in this cardboard CD thing. And that was like kind of the first one of those I've ever gotten. And I remember my dad like messing around with it. And he was like, this is going to wear out. 
I was like, do you mean like the CD case will wear out or like the music style is going to wear out? <laughs> and he was like, no, this, this cardboard stupid CD case. Like, why oh, isn't it so in a plastic deep. case? <laughs> Are you sure it was that album? It wasn't Vitology? Because I remember Vitology was that paper album. That one My was Versus also... was a hard case. So I think they did different editions uh, of it, okay. but I... 100% guarantee you I had a cardboard version that like kind of folded open similar to the Vitology one but as far as Pearl Jam goes I'm not the world's biggest Pearl Jam fan I actually went through a phase of just kind of hating them to be honest mm-hmm. with you but I have kind of rekindled my like of not love but a liking of them yeah and it was kind of between 10 and verses and I ended up listening to verses a lot more so that's my number four yeah, I'll just say it was on my list. This album is my favorite Pearl Jam album. I like it better than 10. I know that that's not the norm for most people. But I uh, just want to say a few things. It's funny that the songs that you mentioned, Daughter and Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town, were the only two songs on that album written by Eddie Vedder. But uh, just some other tracks, Go, Animal, which I mentioned and uh, my favorite track on the entire album is actually Rearview Mirror. I love the I love that. So awesome. And just a callback from earlier episode, Rats is on this album. Rats so is on this album. Top three <laughs> songs about rats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, two more picks left. So, uh, Steven, give us your number five, man. All right, I got a little scared when Sean said Pearl Jam, so I feel like I dodged a bullet. But I'm <laughs> there you go. go. Awesome. There you go. For me, when I was looking through their albums, this one just had more songs that I recognized. You know, like my local rock stations played Jeremy. Like you can hear that daily. It's uh, <laughs> just on all the time there. And uh, for me, Even Flow is almost one of the most classic sounding like songs of the grunge era. Yeah. That guitar riff just for me, it's so memorable and something that I always sort of associate with that era and Alive and Black, really great songs. Yeah, for me, 10 was a really good album, so I went with that. Yeah, man, it's a great album. I failed to mention it, but when I was growing up in the grunge era in high school, Pearl Jam was by far my favorite band. Really stuck tight to them, loved them for a long time. Dated a girl who loved them too, and maybe that's the reason I had a bit of a falling out with Pearl Jam for a while there is because uh, that was a rough breakup, but uh, you have to remember that like around this time, I don't know CDs were out or it was a very new thing at the time, but I had this album on a cassette. I bought it at the same time as Where You Been and Fear by Toad the Wet Sprocket and Where You Been by Dinosaur Jr., of course. I gotta say, man, the second side to this album with Oceans and Release on it and a few other choice tracks... I actually prefer the second side to the first side, though I know the first side is the one that got all the radio play. But I think all in all, fantastic album. Yeah, I'm looking at the track list right now, and uh, yeah, I don't really recognize those, but uh, I'll have to go back and listen to them. Yeah, man, check those out. They're really good tracks. Mm-hmm. All right, number five for me. Well, I've got two that I've got circled here on my list. The last one I don't think I'm going to lose, so I'm going to go with this one instead. I'm also going to be picking an Alice in Chains album, uh, much like Steven. He picked Dirt. I went with what I feel is, if not a better album, but very close to being a tie as far as good albums. I might get some sh- 
good for this because I know it's considered an EP, but it's got a ton of songs on it. I don't understand why it is, but Jar Flies by Alice in Chains is my number five pick. I love this album. There's some really standout tracks, Nutshell, No Excuses, I Stay Away, were the biggest hits, along with the song Don't Follow, which I think is one of the most perfect songs ever written. Like I said, Alice in Chains, probably my favorite band looking back at the grunge era and the one that I feel like really has the most longevity out of all the bands that came out of that era. And uh, Jar Flies is a fantastic album. And that's my number five. That's a really good one. No Excuses is pretty much one of my favorite songs, like period. I mean, I, I love that song. And like you said, Don't Follow is really good. Yeah, this is a really solid pick. Thanks, man. Awesome. All right, Sean, number five. Number five. Okay, well, I got two picks that I know are not going to get picked, so it's just a matter of which one do I want to go first. Actually, you know, Rich, your list is surprisingly female-centric, where mine is not. There's not a single female on my list so I noticed that. I almost said something (laughs) about that, man. Well, it's kind of tough, to be honest, because... I feel like the Riot Girl movement is a completely different thing from grunge. So <laughs> there was a temptation yeah. to pull some of those groups and albums into this conversation, but I just don't think it's right. Most of those bands were from Portland and Olympia. They had nothing to do with the grunge Seattle scene. They were around the same era, kind of, but just something totally different. Courtney Love hated those bands, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I know. You know, just to add to the list of other I things know. she hates. So there you go. Just thought throw that in. <laughs> well, speaking of things Courtney Love hates, I'm going to go with Babes in Toyland, Fontanelle. They are from Minneapolis. So again, not a Seattle band, but definitely had that grunge sound. Cat Bieland is just an amazing shrieking vocalist and they have a few albums and one of their other popular albums is called spanking machine and i listened to both of them today spanking machine is a very good album but in fontanelle she takes the veracity and the ferociousness of her voice to a different level than was on spanking machine and the album kicks off with the song bruise violet which is specifically a diss track against courtney love It was about how Kat Bielan thought that Courtney Love was stealing her style and just kind of being a a hanger on, I guess you could say, and just kind of biting her style. So it's a great diss track, very ferocious, and uh, I would highly recommend you check it out, especially you, Rich. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to any babes in Toyland, so... uh... It's definitely a hole in my listening. So, uh, yeah, I'll definitely throw that on the Spotify, man. Cool. Thank you for that. All right. Well, we're down to our last pick. Steven, start us off. All right. So I feel like I dodged another bullet because when you said Alice in Chains, I thought you were going to go with Facelift. (laughs) So I'm going to go with that now. So Facelift, the first album from Alice in Chains. And I know that Dirt gets all the glory, but for me, Facelift is pretty much right up there with it. I mean, like the opening track, We Die Young, might be my favorite Alice in Chains track, period. Man in the Box is a classic song. I think by now it's a little overplayed. I hear it a lot, and I would say it's kind of like their inner Sandman, but still a really good song, and you got other really great tracks like Sea of Sorrow and Bleed the Freak. I mean, yeah, it's just really great album just from start to finish, and for me it's right up there with Dirt. Nice, man. Yeah, great pick, man. Good one to end on. Two Alice in Chains albums for Steven. 
So my last pick may be a little controversial. I can't believe that we've made it to number six and no one's picked Nevermind, which is simply stunning and would probably be at the top of every damn internet best grunge album searches that you Google. But um, I'm not picking that album either. (laughs) And this may be a little controversial in that this album, it's a Nirvana album. I said no compilations. And technically, when I was saying compilations, this is not what I was referring to. Because every song on this album is by Nirvana. But these were leftover tracks from some of their other albums or B-sides that they ended up putting on one of their albums. And it's not considered a studio album for that reason. It's considered a compilation, but I don't think it really fits that definition. Uh, All this stuff was recorded in a studio, and um, I think this album holds up, and it is my favorite Nirvana album ever, and that is Incesticide. This is an album that I can listen to front to back. It's very heavy compared to um, Nevermind, and I would even say In Utero. Dive is an incredible song at the beginning of this album. Stain, Turnaround, which is actually a song written by Mark Mosbaugh from Devo. There's a um, rendition of Molly's Lips on here, which was, of course, a Vaseline song. Who yeah. um, They were a big influencer of Nirvana, and it's a really great cover. There's an alternate version of the song Polly, which is a lot heavier than the one that's on Nevermind that I really, really dig a lot. A song called Downer, and my favorite track on Incesticide is Aneurysm, and that is a fantastic song. Love it. <laughs> I fell in love with Incesticide the first time I listened to it, and it's one of those I put on and play it all the way through, so I'm, I'm glad I was able to put it on my list. I figured I could save that to last because I didn't think anybody would pick that album. I figured In Utero and Nevermind would go, but uh, not this one. So a little controversial if I'm trying to win this contest, but uh, I stand by it. That's my last pick. Yeah, I support this pick as well, Rich, because, again, I'm a, I was an obsessive Nirvana fan, but this is an interesting look at some of their earlier work. And interestingly enough, you know, it was Nirvana that, inspired me to start making music when I was just a young lad and one of the first songs I ever learned how to play was Floyd the Barber off of Bleach but then after that (laughs) it turned out I learned almost all the songs off of Incesticide like Dive is a really fun song to play Molly's Lips even though it's a Vaseline song but the Nirvana version is literally two chords and very very (laughs) easy to play and fun to sing so yeah I consider it to be an album. When you have a band like Nirvana that was only around for such a short time, you really got to take what you can get. But this turns out to be one of those great B-sides albums, which are kind of rare. I can only think of one other one, which if you're wondering, it's uh, System of a Down Steel. This album is a B-sides album that sounds like just a freaking great album. So this is one of those, and I totally support this pick. So good job. Speaking of being limited, I mean, that's kind of been the fun of this project, hasn't it? Yeah. If you go to Wikipedia, there's probably a list of grunge bands. It's maybe 20 to 25 bands. And you're looking at an era that was from like 1991 to 92 to 1994. So it's not a huge, expansive window of time. And so this has kind of made this project a lot of fun because if you counted up the number of grunge albums that actually came out, 
wow, I mean, you're probably somewhere under 100 or just over that. So uh, that's not a lot to choose from. And uh, it's been a fun project for that reason. But uh, without further delay, Sean, you've got the last pick to uh, round it out. So uh, make it a good one, man. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, this is probably my sleeper pick that nobody's ever heard of. But I really got to give this band some props. The band is called Seaweed. And I like a lot of their albums, but I'm going to choose their album four from 1993. It's not so much grunge as it is like punky rock. Their songs are a lot faster than you would normally see in in grunge music. They're not like sludgy like Alice in Chains or Soundgarden. And they're not like this brooding like Nirvana. If you like like Husker Du or that like older Minneapolis punk sound, you would really like Seaweed. So... This is just a great album. I don't remember too many of the song titles, you know. Losing Skin is a good song. The the opening track that I forget the name right now is really good. It's a great album that you won't want to skip any of the songs. And if you like that, all of their albums are pretty good. So I know Seaweed is a way lesser known band of the grunge era, even lesser known than Mud Honey. So I'm taking a risk throwing them on here, but I hope that people will take a chance and take a listen to this album. Because of the way they chose to structure their songs and the sound of the band, I think it ages a lot better than some of these other bands. So listening to it now, it still sounds like pretty fresh and vibrant in a way that some of this other stuff doesn't. Very cool. Well, that's it. That's going to round out our picks. Guys, good luck in the contest that we're going to be holding. And like I said, we'll have this up on social media, definitely on Twitter and I'm sure on rfgeneration.com. We'll post the list of our picks and we'll let people decide who had the best picks this round. Well, when we do our music picks, we always do some honorable mentions. And I know we had six picks, but we had to have several picks at the ready just in case something got stolen. Steven, did you have any honorable mentions or any extra albums that you were maybe leaning on? Um, So yeah, as far as honorable mentions go, um, I had a few um, on my list that I didn't get to. One uh, was um, Bush's 16 Stone, which I think is their first album. Yeah. I think for a long time I didn't really know who Bush was, but I recognized uh, a few of the songs from this album, and I really like those songs. So yeah, it was next on my list. You guys didn't actually steal any of my picks, so I didn't need the uh, reserves. <laughs> so after that, I had um, Collective Souls' self-titled album, which I think is actually their second album. Mm-hmm. That has Shine on it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a couple other songs I, I really liked. And that's another one where I just kind of like um, the overall sound and that, that they have there. So I figured I'd probably like the rest of the album. After that, I actually had uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. I'm not really a huge Nirvana fan, but uh, I enjoy it somewhat, and Nevermind was going to be a pick if I needed it. But that's more or less what I had kind of in reserve. Nice. All right. Uh, For me, I had a few albums on deck, one of those being uh, Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion. We saw Screaming Trees in concert back in the day. Sweet Oblivion has uh, Nearly Lost You was their popular song and maybe only hit. And then Shadow of the Season and The Secret Kind, also very good songs on that. Alice in Chains' self-titled album, which is also known as the Dog Album or unfortunately also called Tripod for obvious reasons if you know this cover. (laughs) 
it has the songs Heaven Beside You and um, Angry, I think it's called Again, was the other song on that album. It's a very, Don't very good album. Don't confuse it with the Megadeth too. song. I know what you're about to. What's that? I said, don't confuse it with the Megadeth song. Oh, yeah, Angry Again. (laughs) That's where I was going with that, yeah. My handwriting's really bad on this sheet. And then the last one that I have is um, a band that I also saw at a a smaller venue back in college. Probably, ooh, I would say around 96. I walked about three miles to the Cat's Cradle to see the Melvins. And uh, the album Houdini is a pretty awesome album. The song Honey Basket is one of the most banging tracks out there. And uh, definitely would say check that one out. And then uh, finally, uh, one more, Nirvana's Unplugged. I don't know if we would consider that a studio album and it wouldn't have made anyone's list because of that reason, but that's one that, not even being a huge Nirvana fan, I can put on at any time and really enjoy listening to it. That's one of the best acoustic albums of all time, in my opinion. So, so good. Uh, But that's it. Sean, what you got? Yeah, Nirvana Unplugged is definitely a live album, without a doubt. So sure, I would have contested that one. So I'm glad. <laughs> glad it didn't make it. That's very true. Yes. Um, so just to round out the like kind of punk rock girls of the grunge era, Seven Year Bitch uh, is a band that yeah. had a bunch of great albums in that era. Viva Zapata and Gato Negro being two of their best albums, and uh, I almost put stone temple pilots somewhere in the list but i had it in my head that purple was their best album so i tried to listen to purple and uh, i was grooving to the first song second song i was bored out of my mind and i just skipped to interstate love song and listened (laughs) to like the hits on the album and i was like man maybe this isn't as good as i remember but i also want to go back and listen to core yeah better album and i remember that being really good especially hearing some of the song titles brought back a lot of memories so yeah i didn't have too many in reserve because again the only one i cared about getting on the list was Soundgarden. so that's it not too many honorables here i got one more that i glazed over gish by smashing pumpkins great album rhinoceros is probably my favorite smashing pumpkin song and it has bury me and daydream on it which uh daydream is a song that is sung by darcy yeah and you don't get to hear a lot of tracks that she actually sings on. So that's uh, quite refreshing and nice. Well, awesome, guys. This is really fun. I, I really enjoyed doing this. And yeah. I hope that <laughs> this is something we can do some other time. We'll have to find some other type of topic that's somewhat limited to uh, kind of make it fun like this one was. Yes. But uh, good luck to everyone. And, um, you know, hopefully we can figure out some sort of way we can uh, humiliate each other on social media, which would be very, very good.
All right, cool. So, uh, guys, let's get into some news. Since our last recording, we've had E3, so um, I just wanted to kind of glaze over everyone's highlights. Let's let our guests go first. Steven, were there any games that were announced during E3 that caught your attention? Yeah, so one game I saw, and I don't know if this was first announced at this E3. I feel like I heard people mention it being announced before, but this is the first time I've seen it. But it's a game called Atomic Heart, which looks very like Bioshock meets Half-Life. Kind of like this sci-fi looking thing where you get like powers and just a lot of cool stuff going on. And I don't know too much about it um, from the short trailer, but it just looks like a really interesting game. Do you know what system that's coming out for? I think it's just going to be on um, all the modern stuff. I'm not sure if it's an exclusive. Awesome. I I didn't see that one, so I'm definitely interested in checking that out. Yeah, I've got that written down. I was trying to see who it was from, and I didn't recognize the uh, developer, so I don't know what else they may have done. But to me, it looked like something that like Arcane Studios might have made or something, but it's not from them. So, yeah, I also that... um, Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin was kind of an out-of-left-field reveal. It's basically like a 3D action remake of the original Final Fantasy. And I wasn't sure what to make of that at first. It looked kind of bizarre, but they had the uh, playable like demo thing, which was used for like feedback, I think, which I actually downloaded and played. And it's, uh, it's a little rough. It's an early build of the game, but I think it shows some promise and it could be something really cool. And then uh, last, I mean, I think this is one that's... Uh, a lot of people would mention, but uh, Metroid Dread. Yeah, definitely made my list. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think every year everybody asks for a uh, new side-scrolling 2D Metroid game, and it's one of those things I don't think anybody expects to happen, and then, you know, they just kind of drop this on us, and uh looks really cool. It looks like it's taking some elements from Fusion, which isn't my favorite game in the series, so I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but, you know, it's made by the same people that made Samus Returns, and they did a good job with that, yes. so I'm you know, looking forward to this. Yeah, I was going to say that it's crazy that we're getting a 2D Metroid game, but um, I feel like we can thank a lot of indie developers for that because (laughs) there's so many great indie Metroidvanias that are out there now, and it feels like Nintendo was sort of pressured into doing a new Metroid game. Like you said, Samus Returns was great, but it was basically just an updated version of Metroid 2. It's good to see a new title by them, and I'm certainly very, very excited about that. Sean, you want to go next? Anything that stood out to you during the C3? Yeah, nothing too crazy. One thing that caught my eye was Shin Megami Tensei Five, which has been in development for a long time, but they're revealing you know more and more footage there. It makes it look kind of interesting. The other thing is they're doing a re-release of Fatal Frame Maiden of the Black Water. <sighs> I know. <laughs> which is like... It's just another game on the long list of games that it's like, should I play it on the Wii U or should I wait and get it on the Switch now? Well, you say remake, but it was never released on the Wii U in America. It was only released in Japan. Fair enough. I believe, actually, it was released digitally in North America. We just didn't get physical editions. Okay. I thought it was only released in Japan. That was my understanding of it. But hey, we can do some research and uh, have a correction (laughs) for the next show. (laughs) Give us a little something to talk about. Uh, But yeah, I'm definitely interested in that too, man. Especially after our playthrough of Fatal Frame 2. I'm glad to hear that's coming out. So now I can take that off my uh, search list that I get daily from eBay. (laughs) 
Well, for me, uh, a few of the highlights other than Metroid Dread and Fatal Frame Made in the Blackwater, uh, the Legend of Zelda Game & Watch. I usually don't like stuff like this, but I'm such a Legend of Zelda fan that, honestly, I just went ahead and pre-ordered it. I didn't pre-order it the day that it first came out, but I was able to get it several weeks later just through a GameStop pre-order, and yeah, really happy to have that. I wasn't really impressed with Breath of the Wild 2. Everybody was just like going crazy over the footage that they showed, but there was literally like five seconds of new abilities. The rest of it just looked like Breath of the Wild. It's like these people keep hyping these things up and they do it year after year after year in the same game and I just wasn't very impressed by it like other people were. I think the studio that probably impressed me the most was Limited Run Games. Getting physical versions of Super Hot, and then they're doing Axiom Verge 2, which I'm really pumped about. Those are the games that I'm really most looking forward to. Much to Steven's chagrin, uh, Limited Run's also doing Rondo of Blood. <laughs> It's funny, I'd sent Steven a message, he put his for sale list up, and I was like, oh, what do you want for that Rondo of Blood? He sent me a price on it, I was like, well, alright, I mean, it's a great price, but I don't know, let me think about it. And I think it was like, maybe a week later, maybe not even that long, <laughs> Steven, like, Limited Run announced it, you're like, just wanted to let you know that they announced this, so you might just want to wait on that. You know, the reason I, I went out of my way to do that was because I was starting to have second thoughts about selling it. <laughs> So I was trying to talk you out of it, but I didn't want to just pull the offer out. You know, right, right. Well, your price was very, very fair, and I do appreciate that about you. But uh, really glad that Limited Run Games is going to remake this game. And uh, I almost contacted you the other day again about like mm, I still want an original copy, but now knowing that you want to keep that copy, that's even more awesome. I was thinking about selling my um, PC engine because I just don't really use it. And, you know, I went out of my way to buy like all these Japanese games and most of them are RPGs that I can't even play because I don't speak Japanese. And uh, Rondo is the only game that I could really play on it. And, you know, it's just so much money invested just for like one game. And but still, I mean, Castlevania is one of my favorite series, just period. And Rondo of Blood yeah. is my favorite of the classic style games. You know, I have 100 percented it multiple times. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's just a great game. And even though thinking I was going to sell my PC engine, I was just like, you know, holding my original copy. Like, I don't know if I want to get rid of this. It's just kind of kind of special to me, I guess. All right, guys. So uh, let's roll into pickup. Steven, you're the guest, so we'll let you go first. Uh, what are a few things that you've maybe picked up in the last few weeks? Um, I don't know if I've gotten really much of anything uh, opposed to like years ago when we used to talk about this. Or, you know, I was always getting like new stuff. I don't really go out of my way to get like retro stuff anymore. I just kind of get any new release stuff that, um, you know, usually when it goes on sale or whatever. But I mean, I did get a PlayStation 5, but that was a couple months ago, but it's probably the most noteworthy thing I have to talk about. Any games for it? Um, most of the games I have are just the like PlayStation Plus stuff. Um, I did get Resident Evil Village right when that came out, because you know, I'm a huge Resident Evil fan, so of course I got that day one and really enjoyed that. But uh, that's the only like PS5 like physical copy of a game that I have. One of the games that's really kind of popped on my radar is Returnal. Mm -hmm. That game looks pretty cool. I don't know. Any interest in playing that one? Um, yeah, I might talk about that in a minute. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Very nice. All right, Sean, have you had any pickups since our last recording? I know it's only been a few weeks ago. 
Yeah. So Rich, you got to promise not to get mad at me here, but in a way I'm going to hijack the pickup segment because while I didn't get any video games to speak of, I have pursued another passion. And since we have Steven on the show, I thought it would be a perfect opportunity just for a minute or two, because this is music related. And I know we have the concert cast, but I want to talk about some musical gear that I've bought. And I figured it would be appropriate since Steven was once a co-host of the show, but decided that he wanted to pursue music. And it's kind of funny because... You know, I grew up playing music. Like I just said, I picked up a guitar when I was 12 years old after I heard Nirvana and I had been playing music for a long time. Uh, I was in a band called Annoying Customer, which you can look up. There's videos of us on YouTube. But unfortunately, you know, my friend Jesse, who I've talked about many times on the show, and if you're a first time listener, my friend Jesse was my best friend throughout my entire life. He unfortunately passed away in 2013 of cancer. He was also the drummer in my band and my songwriting partner. So unfortunately, I just didn't feel like I had it in me to write music after he died. And it really took me a long time to come around to it, despite a lot of loving friends telling me to do it. I know Jesse would have absolutely wanted me to buck up and start writing music. I don't know what exactly triggered it. One thing was the Gazelle Twin album that I reviewed for the site. Actually, I could plug my last blog article was a review of this album that I heard. It's a good album. It's not groundbreaking or amazing, but it just hit me in the right way. And then reading up on it, the woman, Elizabeth Burkholtz, made that album by herself in her house. And it's very good for like a home recording. And I thought, I wonder how hard that's this to do. And I, you got to think that like when I was a teenager in the 90s in a band, we would be very lucky to know somebody who had like a four track tape recorder that we could record music onto. So nowadays, as I've gone down this rabbit hole, it's actually very easy and extremely affordable to create and record music that sounds completely professional. I've recorded a bunch of songs and uh, I've sent them to people who know a lot about music, some people who are casual music fans, and they were like, wow, I can't believe you made this. And that's not a humble brag. I'm just trying to say that digital music production is so (laughs) cool and awesome. And uh, the more you learn about it, the better you can make your stuff sound. And I just want to put it out there to people like me who are kind of on the fence about creation. And I'm not just talking about music. Like it could be like maybe you want to start a YouTube channel or write a book or something. My advice is to go and do it. But specifically with the music stuff, I cannot believe how accessible music production is. And since we have Steven on the show, before I get to all the musical gear I bought, I'm just kind of curious, what software do you use? What DAW, what kind of effects are you using? I'm just curious because I've dived into this whole thing. Yeah. So for my DAW, I'm using Reaper, um, which is, (laughs) yeah, it's a pretty common one. Um, A lot of people I know use that. Um, You know, it's kind of sort of free. It pretty much is. They say it's not, but they don't make you pay for it. So it kind of is free. But yeah, I mean, I use Reaper and I don't see any reason to, you know, switch from that. It's funny you should mention how easy digital recording is now because I remember, you know, 10 or 15 years ago trying to record guitar just by miking an amp and it just was really difficult because, you know, you might get a guitar sound you really like, but then when you put it in a mix with, you know, drums and bass and whatever else, it sounds different. 
kind of like what your mix requires is different than what might sound good to your ears when you're just jamming. So to me, that was always a huge hurdle. Now I use something called Easy Mix, and there's a lot of different softwares that you can do this with or plugins that you can do this with. But basically, I can just plug my guitar directly into my recording interface and just record it dry. You know, no effects, no distortion. It's just if you listen to it raw, it just sounds like me strumming a guitar with, you know, not plugged into anything. But then I can just turn on my amp effects like after that. And then it sounds, you know, all like the metal stuff that I do. And uh, that way you can just tweak it after the fact. So you can put in all your your bass and everything, and then uh, if your guitar is too bassy, you can just back some of that out, you know, and uh, change your your amp settings and all that after the fact. And to me, that was just a complete game changer. When I discovered that, that was like a big influence in getting me back into like working on music and recording stuff. And other than that, like I mostly only record the guitars for my stuff. I used to record bass myself, but I've uh, since just used a plugin for that. I just like program it with MIDI yep. and then just have the, the plugin do it. And the irony is that I get more compliments on my bass now <laughs> because people think it's because people are like, wow, that bass sounds so good, you know, and it's like indistinguishable from the real thing. Yes. Uh, you know, and I've always done that with drums because I'm not a drummer at all. And some of my videos, you'll see me playing piano, but I'm not actually playing. That's all MIDI, a plugin. <laughs> I'm just faking that. And <laughs> But yeah, it's just, yeah, a completely different ball game than it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, it's amazing. And you bring up another good point about just MIDI instruments and instruments in general. I used to have this thing where, again, I played guitar in a band for like 20 years and I refused to call myself a musician because I didn't know anything about music theory. And I have realized recently how backwards that thinking was and how, you know, we have a slogan here, be your own gatekeeper. Like I was gatekeeping myself like really hard, you know, so I've learned a little bit of music theory in the past couple months, and I 100%, 1000% consider myself a musician now and an artist. So it just feels so good to be back in the saddle. I'm also using Reaper, uh, and some of the other things I've scored are the microphone I'm going through now is a Tascam TM80 or a TS80. I don't know. It's a vocal condenser mic, and uh, I did buy a Focusrite 2i2 interface. I bought two synthesizers. Now, like my wife, you may be asking, why do I need two synthesizers? (laughs) And (laughs) as I told her, one is analog monophonic and the other one is digital polyphonic. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, just confuse her with big words. That's how you justify stuff. (laughs) And then I got a sampling sequencer and uh, a couple other small sequencers and drum machines before i get to the kind of really cool part there's kind of a saying i heard it doesn't matter the gear if you don't have good ideas so <laughs> like again if you just download reaper or even band lab you could put band lab on your phone it's this app for the phone that does multi-track recording and midi and stuff and i was making songs that sounded real on that on my phone before i got reaper so try not to go down the gear rabbit hole because I've been doing that. And if you spend more time browsing Sweetwater and Musician's Friend for cheap synthesizers and guitars, you're wasting time that you could be writing songs and recording your ideas. But the real cool thing that happened to me was my neighbor, James, who is the drummer in a band called Grandchild. And if you look them up on Spotify, there's actually two bands called Grandchild. This is the one with the space in between. So it's Grand Space Child. And they actually put out a new single just a couple days ago called Give Me a Reason. It's really good. Everybody should check it out. But when I first met him, it was 
maybe a couple of years ago, I guess. And uh, I had heard him jamming as I was just chatting with him. And he said, oh, yeah, if you ever want to play, I got this extra drum set. And like I said, at the time, I didn't really care. But again, recently when I got this itch, I sent him an email. And I was like, hey, man, do you still have that drum set? And I was trying to be careful with my language here. I said, are you willing to lend slash sell slash donate that to me? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Preferably option three. <laughs> exactly. So he was actually kind enough to give me his drum set. Wow. Uh, this extra drum set that he had. So turns out... It's the exact same model drum set that I had in New Jersey that I got rid of when I moved. So that is fantastic. So it's just like riding a bike. It's funny, this room, my podcast room, I got a bigger desk for all my recording gear. And uh, this is the room that also has a 50-inch TV with a bunch of game systems hooked up onto it. But now it's becoming the band room. So again i'm sorry for like kind of hijacking the pickups thing but i wanted to talk about this at some point and i figured this would be a good place to do it so it does kind of connect to earth defense force because i decided to call the project wing diver so if you go to wingdiver.com Hopefully, by the time people hear this episode of the podcast, there will be some music up there right now, right this minute as I'm speaking. If you go to wingdiver.com, it just redirects to our podcast. So no issues there if I haven't uh, (laughs) published anything by this point. But the Wing Diver is a class that I've talked about in EDF. It's the all-female jetpack wearing, laser beam shooting squad that saved the earth from the ants and spiders. So... I decided to go with that for the name of the project. And a lot of the songs are in subject matter, kind of inspired by EDF and actually playing it with my wife. So I'm really excited to actually be talking about this kind of publicly because it's going to kind of light a fire under my ass to finish it and get it out there. But I was just waiting until I registered that domain. But now that I've done it, it's somewhat official. I just haven't published anything yet. Very cool, man. I'm uh Glad to hear that you're getting back into your passion like uh, Steven did. Hopefully we can put some of that music on the show as well. Yeah, I would completely endorse that. (laughs) I'm not paying you, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) No, it would be an honor. But the funny thing is, Steven, you're such a talented guitar player. I actually have recorded six songs and I haven't touched an instrument yet. Technically, one of the first things I bought was a MIDI keyboard and I did play some of the keyboard parts, but... I'm still learning piano right now. Like I'm taking YouTube lessons and learning my chords and learning the key signatures and all that stuff. But I will say, if you want to get started in music, just play all the white keys on the piano. That's the key of C major. Then you can write songs and melodies that way very easily. Or it could be the relative scale of A minor. But either way, just play all the white keys and you can come up with stuff pretty easily. I think it's funny that you uh, mentioned earlier about not knowing music theory and saying that that made you like not a musician at one time. And I'll be honest, man, I really don't know Jack about music theory. I mean, that's totally fair. They say the Beatles didn't know it, you know? Other than just kind of what I've sort of intuitively picked up over the years, because I mean, you're going to absorb something, but you know, I've never studied it and it's something I really want to do. I think it would help me out a lot in the long run and just doing like the video game covers now, but I've, you know, you were talking about writing music. I've actually just in the last week or so really been feeling an itch to get back into like writing music. Hell yeah. So I used to do that a lot, like when I was in college. 
as soon as I graduated college, like music pretty much in general just kind of fell off the map. And it wasn't until I started my channel like a little over a year ago that I kind of got back into it. And now I'm just kind of feeling the itch to branch out a little bit and do some other things. But it should be exciting to see what happens. Awesome. Yeah, there's a YouTuber, Andrew Wong, who's like one of the biggest music YouTubers. And something in one of his videos really stuck to me. He said, knowing music theory is like having a superpower. And it's kind of true (laughs) because it really unlocks. It's like a mathematical formula to all music. And the more you know about it, the more you understand about everything that you hear. Yeah. And I'm just starting. Like, what do I know? But I'm saying like, it's helped me a lot already. So yeah, Rich... I apologize, but I had to go there. This has been consuming me in a way. <laughs> like, So I have been playing video games, though. I just haven't been buying them. Understood. Well, if I'd known you guys were going down this rabbit hole, I would have gone first because now the <laughs> that I picked up just seems meaningless, you know. But, uh, as you know, I love my PS1 and picked up a copy of Xevious 3D slash G+. For Shmup fans, this is a really cool pickup because not only does it have the original Xevious on it, but it also has like an updated version with some really cool shooting mechanics. So if you've never seen this game or kind of weary because it was Xevious and let's be honest, Xevious isn't like the most fun shooter out there. I would suggest checking out a video on this because I think it would be a game that you would really enjoy playing. Two systems that I am working on full sets for, but I haven't picked up any games for in a while because I don't really actively collect for these systems or buy outside of what I find in stores. But for the ColecoVision, I picked up a copy of Gyrus, which is an awesome game, and a copy of Mean 18, which is a golf game for the 7800. For the 7800, I've got maybe 11 games left for that, and for the ColecoVision, somewhere around 50. On the Amazon, they were actually running a sale around Prime Day, and so I picked up a copy of Link's Awakening on the Switch. This is a game that I love, and probably one of my favorite Zelda games, even though it's on the Game Boy. I've always wanted it on the Switch, but like Mario games, these games never fall down in price. I was able to pick this one up for about 30 bucks, which is amazing. Got a used copy of Burnout Paradise Remastered for the Switch. My son bought a copy of Need for Speed for himself for the Switch, and he loves that game. And I said, hey, man, have you ever played any of the Burnout series? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, let me introduce you to this series because the crashes in the Burnout games and then just the different modes where you see how many cars you can crash within a specific time limit are what make those games for me. Whereas the Need for Speed games tend to be more about time trials. I find that rather boring and dull. He hasn't played this yet. It actually just came in the mail and he's out of town. So I can't wait for him to check this out. Today, I got my limited run copy of Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2 on PS4. Looking forward to playing this game. I wasn't ecstatic about the first game, but it's a Castlevania-like game, and I do like those types of games, and I just can't say no to them. Steven, is this one you've picked up? I know you're a huge Castlevania fan. Yeah, so you guys did the playthrough for uh, Curse of the Moon a while back, and honestly, I I kind of agree with you that the first time I played through Curse of the Moon, I wasn't really that into it, but I revisited it when you guys did the playthrough and I just kind of fell in love with it. And oh, I, just, cool. I played through it like three times going for the different types of runs you can do and all that. And uh, 
So I think I actually pre-ordered Curse of the Moon 2 like digitally and played it. And I've only played through it once and I honestly wasn't that into it. One thing that's interesting about it is it has a co-op mode. So you can just play two players at the I same time. I noticed that. You know, on the back of the cover it said yeah. one to two players. Okay. So that was like my only playthrough that I've done is I played through it with a friend. And I probably just need to go back and play through it on my own, but uh, I just haven't done that yet. It's kind of more the same, um, which for me, I think is pretty cool because I like those style of games. But yeah, I wasn't sold on that one so far as I was on the first one. It's good to hear that the first game has some replayability, especially for people who want the different types of endings and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'll be curious to check this one out. One thing that I picked up that I was really, really excited about was the box for Aeroflash for the Genesis. For a while, I only collected loose carts for the Genesis, and I've been slowly trying to get box copies because while I don't collect cardboard, I definitely love having clamshells in the manuals for these games. I've had Aeroflash for years and years, and a few years ago, I was able to pick up a copy of the manual at a local swap meet for a buck. And so I've had the game and the manual, I'm like, all I need is the box. As you know, this is a game that's gotten really, really pricey. All of the shmups, of course, on the Genesis half. But I was able to get this one for a good price. A guy had it on eBay for a long time, and I finally made him an offer. He counter-offered, and I was like, Dude, this is all I'm willing to pay for this box. And so he agreed to it, and he sent it to me. So now I have a complete copy of Aeroflash, which I'm really excited about. Adding to my Game Boy Pocket collection, a lot of people don't know this, but the silver Game Boy Pocket actually came with two different bezels. One was the dark gray or black bezel, which is common in all the Game Boy Pockets. But then they had another one that was the reflective silver one that was released in North America. I had the reflective silver one, but my buddy owns a game store and uh, he sold me the gray one at a good price. A big collector of variants, but I have been collecting all of the Game Boy Colors and Game Boy Pockets and all the Play It Louds for North America. And that's one that I decided I was going to pick up because he had it at a great price. I did pick up another handheld system, which I am super excited about, especially when I went on eBay and looked at the price. It's funny, I was on Facebook Marketplace and saw the original DS in a teal color. It was around like 75 bucks, which I realized was good because the teal color one is actually the Nintendogs, if you remember those games, edition. Which is really rare, and even loose, these things are selling for close to 200 bucks now. But I almost pulled the trigger on the $75 one, and I was like, you know what, I really don't need that. I don't know why I want it. And went into the game store, and there was one sitting on the counter that they had just refurbished. And I was like, hey, what do you want for that? And they were going through their computer trying to find the correct pricing on it. And uh, they sold it to me as an Ice Blue DS, which uh, it's about a $30 to $40 system. And so that's what I ended up paying for this instead of the $75 and definitely not the $175 to $200 price that it commands on eBay. So I'm really, really happy to add this. I've never had one of the original DSs before, and I love how it's not uniform. Like, the other ones, like, close like a clam, and they're very symmetrical, and this is not. And I think it's just got a really cool look to it, and I hate that they went away from that look. So, uh, yeah, really happy to add this to the collection.
All right. You want to get into what are you playing? Absolutely. All right. Let's kick it over to Steven again. Steven, besides Metal Gear Solid 2, <laughs> what have you been playing? Alluded to it before, but yeah, I got Returnal through a discounted Gamefly membership because these PS5 games are like really expensive. They raise the price, so it's they're like $70 new and they're not really going on sale much. So I ended up getting like a deal on a Gamefly account and I got um, the... Demon Souls remake and Returnal, and I played through the Demon Souls remake a while back, and uh, I played through the original Demon Souls back in the day, and I wasn't really into it, but I was into it a lot more. I've kind of dipped into that series or genre of games uh, over the last few years. It's grown on me a lot, and uh, I, I really enjoy my time with Demon Souls. But with Returnal, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to really like this one because it's got that like roguelike element to it, where every time you die, you pretty much start right back at the beginning. So thought that might get frustrating and it kind of is but uh the game's divided up into these six biomes the biomes are just like large overall areas like here you can think of them as like just large levels i didn't have too much trouble with the first two but with the third one i just felt like i was really beating my head against the wall and i mean i very nearly just gave up on the game i can't think of a time where i've been playing a game that i really enjoyed and just thought i don't know if i can do this because it's too hard that might be the first time i can remember thinking that but i pushed through i got through that third biome and uh i ended up getting through the second half of the game like relatively easily like i actually didn't die at all after that point although i came close a few times but yeah i was actually thinking about going back and getting the uh like there's a second ending you can get and i also thought i might get the platinum trophy but i think it just would have required a lot of uh time spent just kind of running through the game because so much of it is random and you have to get like specific pickups and you just don't even know if they're going to spawn in a run so i just kind of gave up on that but overall i really enjoy the game other than that i've been playing uh breath of fire 3 for the ps1 kind of off and on for a couple months I was really enjoying it at first. It's a game I actually rented a few times when I was a kid, but I never got very far. But I always liked it. And on this current playthrough, I'm probably not even halfway through the game, but I was really enjoying it at first. But I kind of feel like I'm running out of steam on it, just losing interest. But uh, going to try to stick with it and see if I can get back into it and uh, hopefully finish that one. And I think lastly, I've been playing Super Mario Galaxy for a different playthrough group this month. And uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who they are. Absolutely. Oh, please <laughs> do, man. <laughs> so, yeah, the Cartridge Club this month's been doing Super yeah. Mario Galaxy. Good friends of it. ours. We've yeah. recorded with them before. <laughs> For me, 3D Mario games are kind of hit and miss. There's a few that I really like, and then the rest I've kind of had a hard time getting into. And Galaxy's one I've tried to play a couple times over the years and just had a hard time getting into it. Playing it now, it's grown on me a little bit. I'm enjoying it more. I don't think it's going to go down as my favorite 3D Mario game, but uh, like I said, I'm glad that it is kind of growing on me because it's a very popular one. It seems to be a fan favorite, so glad to finally kind of work my way through that. Awesome, man. Yeah, um, it's funny you mentioned Breath of Fire 3 and how you've kind of lost interest in that game. I remember back in the day playing Breath of Fire 1 on the... Um, Super Nintendo and just loving it in the beginning. And for some reason, just my interest waned. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was because it was getting too difficult or um, if, I, if it was getting bored. I, I just can't remember the reason for that. But yeah, that's very interesting that that series uh, <laughs> seems to have that reputation, I think. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine was telling me he's tried to play Breath of Fire 3 a few times over the years and he kind of had the same experience, just loses interest after a while. And I actually did play through the first Breath of Fire several years ago. 
I thought it was okay. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Mm-hmm. And I had Breath of Fire 2 when I was a kid, actually, and I, I never finished it. I I don't even remember how much I, how far I got through it. But, uh, you know, compared to, like, what Squaresoft was putting out back then, I mean, it just wasn't anywhere nearly as good for me. Well, I'll go ahead and jump into my games played. I imagine Sean has more than one, which I only played one additional <laughs> game this month, even though he has been busy with his music career. The only other game that I have played in the last few weeks is a game that I coerced my son into buying. (laughs) (laughs) My son's funny. You know, you remember when you were a kid and you would have money and it would just be burning a hole in your pocket. You'd want to spend it on video games or just some other type of junk. Well, my son's birthday was June 14th, Flag Day, which is the same as Sean's wife from what I remember. Yep. And he had gotten cash and a few GameStop gift cards. And our neighbor Game Ruler came over and he wanted me to put Mario Golf Super Rush into our database. And so we did that. And while he was here, I said, hey, man, how about taking it in the game room slash office and playing it with my son for a little bit to see if it's something he might like? Well, he did end up liking it and ended up convincing him to buy it, which, you know, saved me some money because, you know, this is a game that I really wanted to add to the collection because I love the Mario Golf games. But, you know, I'm not one to shell out 65 bucks for this game. So uh, he and I have been playing this game. He bought it and he had immediate regrets about it because he couldn't really figure it out because he'd never played a golf game before. But when I showed him like all the different dynamics, you know, about how to adjust for wind, how to, you know, not hit the ball at a full swing and let the ball run up onto the green and stuff and how to putt, which is probably the most aggravating thing about all these golf games. He started liking the game a lot better, started having a lot more fun with it. And it's just been a a joy to be able to play with him and his friends. There's a lot of couch co-op that goes on at my house with he and his neighborhood friends And it's just wonderful to see that because it just reminds me of growing up. And that was really the only option we had when we wanted to play multiplayer. I've kind of been joining in with these kids, playing some games, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, we've had a blast with Mario Golf Super Rush. However, I will say that the game's fun, but it doesn't like break any new ground. If you've played a Mario Golf game in the past, this is very, very similar. It's basically a Mario Golf game on the Switch. You know, they didn't do one for the Wii U, so it's nice to have a new one, but they didn't really add a lot to this one either, which is a little disappointing. There are characters in the game, but as far as unlockable characters, there's not any that I've seen. And the only thing that you can really unlock are courses. So what my thought is, is probably Nintendo's trying to make some money and we'll have some DLC characters to add to this game later on, which is, uh, it's a little bit frustrating to have to put more money into a game when you've already paid full price for it, but uh, we'll just kind of see how it goes, and uh, I know I'm not going to put any money into it for that, but, you know, we'll see what my son wants to do, and uh, see what his tendencies are as far as uh, DLC is, but uh, yeah, that's it. Have you guys happened to play this game? No, I saw that it came out, but nothing yet. I don't think I've played a Mario golf game since the first one on the N64. Yeah, the reviews haven't been like super positive for the one on the Switch, and I think it's more of the same. Like My complaint is it just doesn't break any new ground. There's nothing really that special about it. It's fun, though, and it's beautiful. So uh, 
I guess there's that. Yeah, I don't have anything against them. I just haven't. It's just not something I've come back to since 25 years ago or something. Yeah, I think the last time I played a Mario Golf game was during one of our December competitions. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. All right, Sean, what have you been playing? EDF. Ear-dominating funk. <laughs> In thread. Uh, no, I've been playing both versions of Earth Defense Force 4. One with my wife, which is Earth Defense Force 2025 on the Xbox 360. And then I also have a playthrough going on Earth Defense 4.1 on PlayStation 4, which is an upgrade of the same game. So I am still playing those. We're reaching the end of Earth Defense Force 2025. Very interesting game. This being the fourth game in the series, they really kicked it up a notch about halfway through the game and threw in something that just kind of, <laughs> you know. They I They jumped the shark. No, 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 no. They don't jump. <laughs> is shark. there any shark to um, jump in those games? <laughs> look, this is a, you know, it's goofy, tacky sci-fi, but I could think of things that they could do to just ruin it uh, for sure. But this isn't one of those things. They threw some awesome stuff into the mix that was just like, oh man, like this is really cool. But uh, Stephen hasn't heard our last episode yet. And I, <laughs> for those who haven't heard it, I went off for about 20 minutes about EDF and how much it's changed my life. And obviously, <laughs> it's part of what inspired me to do music. And I'm naming my band, at, my one-man <laughs> band after it. So a non-EDF game that I'm playing is Valkyria Chronicles 3, which is an interesting entry in the series because this was a japan only psp game so valkyria chronicles is a series that i really love but i've never finished a game like i played the first one didn't finish it played the second one which is a psp game didn't finish it and i had heard good things about the third one and i downloaded a fan translation patch of it years ago and i just had it sitting on one of my psps so I actually moved it to my Vita, and I've been playing that. It's pretty cool. For people who don't know, Valkyria Chronicles is like a 3D turn-based but kind of real-time strategy game where you're on this map that's like a battlefield map, and you move your characters around. They can only move so far, so you want to make sure you move into a strategic space where you're not just out in the open, and then you can take a shot, and then your turn is over. But one of the things I love about this series in general is the characters. There's a lot of waifus and husbandos that you can really bond with. And uh, they're all awesome character designs, great Japanese voice acting and whatnot. So uh, I really like the anime trappings of the whole thing. I don't know what makes it so that I don't finish these games are not super long that I know of, but I'm just playing this one like a mission or two every week. So it may take me a long time to beat it, but I'm going to try and stick with it. I kind of like the story. It's about this soldier who is accused of treason, but not given the reason of the treason or the season or, uh, <laughs> So just kidding. So they tell him he's guilty of treason with no trial and then put him in command of this squad of other like convicted criminals. So it's almost like the suicide squad kind of situation where he has to command the squad that they don't trust him and they're kind of miscreants kind of thing. 
a little more interesting than the story from Valkyria Chronicles 2 on the PSP, which was just that, like, it's these kids at a school that are, like, training. A lot of people didn't really like that from a story perspective. So, yeah, this one's pretty cool. I like the story so far. I like the waifus, the husbandos. So I'm going to try to stick with it, but we shall see. Nice. So let's move into our main topic of discussion. Our game of the month was Metal Gear Solid 2. And as usual, we'll start with our question of the month. We ask a question every month on Twitter at RFG Playcast, Instagram at Sean Gray, Discord. Uh, there's a link to our Discord on the front page of RFGeneration.com. And the RFGeneration.com playthrough thread, which is where you should be playing the games with us and chatting about them. I'll actually tell you what the question is first, which is what's a game you love that wasn't what you expected it to be? And this is in relation to Metal Gear Solid 2 for reasons we'll get into in a little bit. So let's start on Twitter. We got at CollectorCast, our good friend Chris. He says, no more heroes. I had no clue exactly what it was all about when I started playing it, but it's a rabbit hole that I didn't want to climb out of. Good choice. I love that game. And yeah, there's a lot of unexpected uh, gameplay elements in that game. So Bill, also from the Collector Cast podcast, he says, great question. I'm going to go with Metal Gear Solid 2, winky face. (laughs) (laughs) He He said, also, let me mention Gone Home. Had no idea what it was going to be like going into it. And it was an awesome experience. 
another cool answer gone home was not what i expected it to be because i actually didn't like it but i'm glad that bill had a better experience my good friend Corey robertson he said honestly i had no clue what to expect when i played both limbo and inside they were not what i was expecting whatsoever i love them so much though so Corey shouting out previous playthrough titles that we did that he played with us I got a couple responses over on the Discord, so let's go over there. Game Boy Guru, aka Metal Fro Josh, he said, I don't know how well this fits the direction of your question, but Breath of the Wild, I knew it was going to be a good game before I played it, but I didn't realize it was going to impact me the way it did, nor that it would become my favorite game of all time. <laughs> wow. And the game certainly surprised me in terms of just how much thought the team put into it and how layered it is. People are still uncovering secrets in it four years later. Good answer. Lastly, on the Discord, we got Corkman77 or Corkman77. He said, for me, it would be Yakuza 0. I played some of 1 and 3, but never really got into them. I heard 0 was good and was interested to explore the series more. I went in just wanting to play an open world 3D beat-em-up. I got way more than I bargained for. It was a much more dense open world with tons to discover than I expected. I spent tens of hours playing mini-games. The game's story and side missions were very compelling. They either made me laugh out loud or almost made me cry. I was expecting a 15-hour experience, not a 150-hour experience. Wow. And lastly on the forum, we got Mr. Stubbs who says, My pick for this would have to be Incredible Crisis. The cover art, which is a plain yellow background with a red face of a man with a volcano on his head, <laughs> tells you absolutely nothing about the game. Not knowing what to expect, I was pleasantly surprised when I picked it up as a rental in the early 2000s and found out it was this quirky and hilarious game consisting of quick time and rhythm-based mini-games. While it is a short game and some of the mini games can be finger numbing and repetitive, it is still one of my favorite PS1 games of all time and one that I'm glad I took a chance on. So yeah, those are our answers from the internet. I do have an answer from my wife. It's actually kind of cool. So I asked my wife, what's a game that you love? That wasn't what you expected it to be. And she really loves this game. It's a mobile phone game called Ebony. E-V-O-N-Y. And she said it wasn't what she was expecting because it was one of those things where it was advertised on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, looking like a puzzle game. And my wife really likes mobile puzzle games. She used to only play puzzle games and find the thing games. I don't know what they're called. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the item finding games. Yeah. But she said, Ebony is like, a real-time strategy war game and there's farming elements of course but she's in a guild there's like a message board element to it so she wanted me to let everybody know that her <laughs> handle on there is aco gray that's a-c-o-g-r-a-y she's on server 194 and her clan is called exc oh shit <laughs> exc oh shit <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my wife is left-handed, so she writes like a doctor. Let me... uh... (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) 
I might have to get back to you on that because I'm texting <laughs> her and she's not going to text me back. Okay. So anyway, that's my wife's answer. Hopefully I can get that guild name or the clan or whatever it's called back from her real quick. Uh, but it's funny. I was the one who came up with this question because I thought it was good for Metal Gear Solid 2. And it was actually really hard for me. To oh, my God. This was answer. the hardest question to answer ever. Yeah. Well, you know why, Rich? Uh, you're probably a lot like me where you research the hell out of every game you play before you play it. So you know exactly what to expect. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, you know, this would have been yeah. an easy question to answer pre-internet. And that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to think back to like, okay, what are some games I played a long time ago that I wasn't expecting to like, but I did. But I was thinking, well, you know, even in back then, like I had to buy my own games and didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. And so I had to look at Nintendo power or something to find like good reviews and, you know, at least something to make me want to buy those games. So yeah, this was tough up until like a few moments ago, I wasn't able to come up with anything. And now it's all flooding in and I've got like three or four things. So uh, yeah, it's a question that you really, really have to think about. Awesome. Well, one example that I came up with, it's actually a holy grail of a game that I got from Steven. It's Magic Knight Ray Earth for the Sega oh, okay. Saturn. And when I first modded my Sega Saturn, of course, I like downloaded and burned every game onto CDRs and was playing through all of them. And I really thought Magic Knight Ray Earth was going to be like an RPG. It's not. There's RPG elements, but like looking at screenshots, it looks like a top-down view, like a traditional RPG view. But what it actually is, is the three characters work interactively with the environments and you kind of switch the characters as you play to do certain things. It's more action-based. It's more like a Zelda game. And it kind of at the end of the game, it turns into a scrolling shoot-em-up, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. <laughs> so I... Love that game dearly. I haven't played it in a very long time, but it really blew me away. I think I had just played Albert Odyssey on the Saturn, which is a traditional RPG. Mm -hmm. And I was ready to dive into Magic Knight Ray Earth, expecting the same thing. And it just wasn't that. It was, in a lot of ways, way more interesting than just your run-of-the-mill RPG. Cool. That's one that I can come up with so far. But yeah, what about you guys, Steven? Yeah, this was a hard one for the exact reasons you said. It's just, uh, I feel like I always kind of know what I'm getting into. So it's uh, rare that a game surprises me. And when it does, it's not always going to be a game that I like. I had a few games that I thought could maybe work. But I'm going to go with one that I know you guys will be familiar with. Um, that's uh, Hellblade Sinuous Sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. When I first heard about this game and saw a little bit of it, I thought this was going to be like a generic like hack and slash kind of game. Really, what made me want to play it was why I learned that it wasn't. You know, I remember seeing some screenshots of some really freaky stuff. It reminded me of something you would see in like Silent Hill. And I was like, wow, this actually looks really cool. So I played it, and you know, it's not a hack and slash at all. It's like a, more of a story driven game. And, uh, you know, it's about Sinua and her um, psychosis. And uh, I feel like they did a really good job of like uh, portraying that and representing that and sort of like immersing you in it, you know, just completely different than what I expected. And it does have some combat, but it's a little more um, strategic. Like there's a little bit of a rhythm to it. It's not like a hack and slash kind of thing, like a button mashy kind of combat system, but uh, just something that really surprised me. And I blew through that game in like a weekend because I just was uh, so like enamored by it. I just couldn't stop playing it. But uh, yeah, that one really surprised me. Sweet. 
Rich, before you answer, I just got to jump in. My wife texted me back. Uh, her clan is just called EXE. Whatever chicken scratch she wrote after that is, I don't know what it is, but she just, it's EXE. It stands for the Exalted. So if you want to join the Exalted clan on Ebony on server 194, talk to ACO Gray. She's ready to, to <laughs> welcome you to the clan. Very nice. My wife is really in the phone game, so I'll have to mention that to her. Although it might be a bad thing to get our wives together doing something. <laughs> right. All of her deepest secrets will come out. <laughs> yeah, so like I said before, this was one of those lists where it was really hard for me to come up with something. But after I started, the floodgates just started opening for me. And just a few honorable mentions till I get to my one pick, which I think Sean's going to really like. But a few honorable mentions for me, Life is Strange. That's a game I didn't think I would enjoy, but really ended up loving. I thought that it might be more of a walking simulator, which it has elements of, but uh, I just got really immersed in that game and loved it. I'm not a fan of the Grand Theft Auto series, which I've mentioned on the show several times, but I really loved the game Bully and was really surprised after learning that it was made by the same developers. So yeah, that's a game that I love and highly recommend. And then I would say also the Guitar Hero series. It's kind of one of these people that's like, it looks at it from a guitarist perspective, even though I'm not a guitarist at all and can't play an instrument. But the Guitar Hero series for me is one of these things where my wife and I started playing it and just really, really enjoyed it and have just had a great, great time over the years and uh, shared it with our kids. But the game that I decided to go with as the one that I love that I didn't expect to is What Remains of Edith Finch. I just really, really love this game. One month we did a bunch of walking simulators through the PC and uh, played Dear Esther, Gone Home, and Stanley Parable. And I just didn't get it. Just had no desire to ever play these games again or play games that were in any way like them. And I had heard all this buzz about the game What Remains of Edith Finch, and I didn't know that it was basically the same type of game, a walking simulator. But that game is one of my favorite games of all time. It's phenomenal, and if you've never played it and are the type of person that is really against games that are more like exploratory walking simulators, I'd say give this one a try because it has a great story. It's a really moving and deep game and a lot of fun. Yeah, really, really enjoyed my time with that game. Um, I've not played that game, and... Uh... I've heard good things and I'm interested in it, but I'm also not really a big uh, like walking simulator guy. Um, but I will say um, Firewatch was a really good one. You mm-hmm. might want to check that one out. I own it for PS4, a limited run yeah. copy. So yeah, really yeah, definitely that look one. at that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen, Edith Finch, as far as walking simulators go, is mm-hmm. like a huge cut above like what you okay. would consider. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, I don't really like Gone Home. This mm-hmm. makes Gone Home look like Snake on a calculator. It, it's it's a, <laughs> like a a million times better of a thing. I think I have it downloaded. I know I know I have it on uh, PSN. I know I had it on my PS4. I'm, I might have downloaded it on my PS5, but uh, it's I'm definitely interested in that one because I've just heard so many good things. Definitely yeah, check definitely it out, man. Let's know what you think. <laughs> yeah. All right. So 
That question, as I said, was inspired by our game Metal Gear Solid 2, which we played Metal Gear Solid way back in the day, and I can't remember the episode number now. I had it before, but I think it's like uh, episode 12 or 13 or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, very early. Very early, but you can look that up. All of our archives are still up, so you can go check it out. That was me and Floyd talking about Metal Gear Solid 1. I listened to it only a couple of weeks ago, and it's actually really not that bad of an episode for a very early episode, so definitely worth checking out. So Metal Gear Solid 2 is obviously the sequel to Metal Gear Solid. It was developed for the PlayStation 2, which was a generational leap, Metal Gear Solid 1 being on the PlayStation 1. It was released in 2001 on the PlayStation 2. It later came to the original Xbox as the Substance version. And also there is a Windows version. Much later, it was ported to almost everything as far as these HD collections and the legacy collection. So it's really not that hard to get your hands on. You can even play it on the Vita. You cannot play it on the Switch. I'll tell you that much. As of as of this recording, <laughs> this game cannot be played on the Switch. Just FYI. But, of course, this game was published by Konami and directed, produced, and designed by Hideo Kojima. And also, he was the head writer on the game. So, as we've talked about in the past, you know, Hideo Kojima is kind of one of the auteurs of the game industry. And I definitely don't want to give short shrift to his teams, but it's one of those things where like the documentation of the developments of the game, a lot of it has to do with Hideo Kojima. <laughs> so the musical composer is Norihiko Hibino and so Harry Gregson Williams. So let's get into the story, Rich. Story in 60 seconds. In 2007, Snake infiltrates a tanker, which is purportedly carrying a new Metal Gear model called the Ray. However, Snake is not alone, and the Marine-guarded tanker is soon overrun by an army of Russians, including Snake's old nemesis, Revolver Ocelot. Ocelot soon turns on his comrades, stealing the Ray for himself, sinking the tanker, and pinning this toxic environmental incident on Snake. Our story actually begins two years later, aboard the environmental cleanup facility known as Big Shell. President Johnson has been kidnapped while touring the facility by a group of terrorists who call themselves the Sons of Liberty. If their demands are not met, they will destroy Big Shell and launch the world's greatest environmental disaster ever. You play as Raiden, an agent of Foxhound, who must infiltrate the facility, rescue the President, and spoil the Sons of Liberty's plans. But... What secrets, new enemies, allies, and twists lie in wait for you aboard the big shell? Very good. Very good. Admirable anytime you can condense the story of any Metal Gear <laughs> Solid game into 60 seconds. But especially this one. I mean, yeah. I, I guess that's what I've got going for me is that I really don't have to get into the story that much you know i'm i'm just kind of setting it up and can be you know a little elusive with my words about what's going on so uh thank god man i would not yeah. ever want to try to <laughs> explain the story to anyone man it is convoluted but uh you know that's something we can definitely talk about 
Yeah. So actually, we kind of forgot the personal histories with the game, but also we have here which versions we played. So let's knock that out. Then we'll go back into gameplay and story will come naturally. So as everybody knows, I'm a Metal Gear Solid fanatic. It probably is my favorite series of all time, if I'm being honest. I am still playing Metal Gear Solid 5 to this day. It's been uh, it's been five years, I think, five or six years. And uh, Metal Gear Solid is, I think, the game that I've beaten the most times out of any video game. So I really have a lot of love for this series. But oddly enough, Metal Gear Solid 2 is one that I only played through like obsessively. Like I probably beat it a couple times, but I really only played it like around the time it came out. You may remember our guest Frank Barberi from the Darksiders episode. When the PlayStation 2 came out, he and his brother got one and they actually let me borrow it, which is crazy because I think they had a Dreamcast at the time and they were like more into the Dreamcast. So they let me borrow their PS2 and a bunch of games. And I remember at the time playing the Metal Gear Solid 2 demo that came with uh, Zone of the Enders. And that was a big thing because it was like oh, this is a $30 demo disc and also it comes with Zone of the Enders kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm. So that was a big deal. And then when the game itself came out, I remember playing it obsessively and just, I played it all night a couple times. I remember the apartment I was in and just playing this game all night, which is funny because it's, it's about a 10 to 15 hour game. It's not like it's some long game, but there's just tons of stuff you can do. So this time around, I played it on the original Xbox because I told you guys a couple episodes back that I got this radical modded original Xbox. So I played it on that this time around, which is the substance version. It has a lot of extra bells and whistles, but everything I tried, I didn't really enjoy. Like there's this thing called snake tails, which are like these little scenarios that you get put in but they're like extreme difficulty so it's like all right too bad like i'm not interested in that so that's kind of my history with the series which is very well known and uh steven i know you're you're also a big fan which is why you're here but if you could give us a recap of the series in general and what is your experience with metal gear solid 2 well my experience is actually uh pretty rocky um (laughs) I played the original Metal Gear Solid around the time it came out, maybe not immediately, but it was still during that like time, during that era, and I was kind of young. I might have been like 12 or 13, and uh, for me, it was just another game. I didn't really think much of it one way or the other. It was just another game that I played through, and I don't know why, but I was like so hyped for Metal Gear Solid 2. I think it had something to do with like the marketing behind it. I think there was like a big promotional campaign, but I was like really hyped for it. And uh, so I got it like right when it came out and it was kind of the same story. It was like just another game. You know, I didn't really have strong feelings one way or the other. And I remember being really frustrated with Metal Gear Solid 3, which I played also around the time it came out. And we'll talk more about this, but um, all the cutscenes and codec calls and everything. And it was really getting long winded and in that game and uh that kind of set the tone for um my feelings towards that series for a long time was i consider myself not a fan at all Hmm. Um, in fact that might have been closer to like a hater of it 
like I said, I wasn't a big fan of three and I played four and I really didn't like four for this, like the same reasons, just a lot of cutscenes and stuff. And, uh, it wasn't until the, uh, cartridge club did metal gear solid three a little while back that I just decided to play through it again. And, uh, it really grew on me a lot. I was already kind of like mentally prepared for all the cutscenes and the long winded story segments and codec calls and all that. But I think also, um, that's just kind of the direction that a lot of games have gone in in the last decade or so. It's more story heavy, more cutscenes. I was just more prepared for it. And I ended up getting into the game a lot more and did the same thing with the first Metal Gear Solid when I revisited that. Yeah, I had a really hard time putting the first one down when I revisited it, just really got into it and finally like understood the hype around it and like really appreciated like all the innovations around it. So I knew I wanted to get back to Metal Gear Solid 2 and then you guys did the playthrough. So I'm like, okay, here we go. And, uh, so yeah, I played it this time on the uh, Legacy Collection, so I played it there on PS3 and uh, ended up enjoying it more than I remembered. I, I didn't really have much of a memory of it in the first place because it's been 20 years, but ended up enjoying it. And for me, I think it's the weakest of the three. Well, that's not to say I think it's bad at all. I just uh, just didn't quite grab me as much, and maybe we'll talk about some of those reasons why, but... I think I consider myself a fan of the series now, which is like a complete flip-flop from how I used to feel about it. But I'm glad to say that I'm enjoying these now. Got it. Now, as for Rich, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, refresh my memory. I think you are a fan of the first game, but have never played Metal Gear Solid 2. Am I remembering that correctly? That is accurate. I have never played Metal Gear Solid 2 until now. Huge fan of the first game. Played it my senior year in college. My roommate, who also loved video games, we would sit down and take turns playing Metal Gear Solid and Resident Evil 2 and uh, ended up beating both games. Like I said, just a huge fan of Metal Gear Solid. Cool. And you've never played 3, 4, 5 at all, right? I have not. I was a latecomer to the PS2, and I think for me, it's always been really daunting as a collector seeing all these different versions, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance. I was like, which is the real Metal Gear Solid 2? I don't really know <laughs> what the differences are, you know? It's just very confusing as a series, you know, how things line up and which one I should have been playing next. So, uh, yeah, up until now... I wasn't able to figure that out, so you know, very excited to finally sit down and play the second game. I'm sorry if I didn't catch it. What version did you play this time? Uh, yeah, um, I didn't mention it, but um, of course you know which version I played it on, right? I mean, the PS2. Vita? No. <laughs> <laughs> PS2, man. I always go original. I always want that original experience, so I played it Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty on the PS2. Nice. So you got the vanilla version of the game, which can be had for about a dollar anywhere. Now, I'm a big proponent of do it right the first time. If it's a good game, it's got to be good the first time around. That's the way I feel about it. You know, I, I'm not arguing. I, you know, be <laughs> your own gatekeeper for sure. I actually didn't mean that as a dig. I just think this is one of those games It's kind of like the first Medal of Honor or like Madden 2002 where like you see it literally everywhere in every bargain bin for like two or three dollars. And, uh, you know, it's worth every penny, but we'll get to that and final thoughts. All right. So let's roll into gameplay and we'll go over the story as we go. 
So a lot of the gameplay is carried over from Metal Gear Solid 1. You have these kind of weird controls that take a little bit of time to get used to for a lot of people. Even me, uh, I'm so used to the controls of Metal Gear Solid 5 that going back to 2 took me a little time to get used to them. So it's a third-person stealth slash action game where you move around 3D environments, usually fixed camera. Sometimes there's scrolling cameras, but the camera is not like super dynamic, but there is a first-person mode that you can utilize. Yeah, I'll just say that uh, that first-person uh, view mechanic is pretty welcome, makes lining up shots pretty easy, for especially headshots, because those count if you're trying to take out enemies in one shot. We're trying to take out enemies that are kind of partially obscured by boxes or, you know, any sort of thing in the environment. So I think that's a really cool uh, addition to this game from the first game. Yeah. The first game actually had a first person view, but you couldn't do anything in it. So the big upgrade here is that you can actually shoot from first person, which, like you said, is a big, especially when you're being stealthy. And like you said, you can line up that perfect headshot and take somebody out. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a great upgrade in the game as well, along with the addition of the M9. I think this game has a lot of really cool stealth mechanics that the first game didn't have. A lot of times you could just kind of fire away and blast through the first game when you needed to. But the M9, which is, for those who don't know, is like a trank gun. That's a really nice addition to this game, you know, as far as uh, being stealthy, because I think this game really rewards stealth gameplay more than the previous one did. And that's a really, really important part of it. As far as the mechanics were concerned, I did have a little trouble with the mechanics, like the third person uh, and then going into the first person view. I felt like where the first Metal Gear Solid game, from what I remember, is more of an overhead view in a lot of places. I felt like it was easier to kind of see what was in front of you, where a lot of times in this game there were some corners and some obstacles where you couldn't see unless you went into that first-person mode. So it took me a little while to get adjusted to that. But once I did, I found the game a lot more enjoyable. Awesome. Well, speaking of stealth, as with the first game, there's a radar system and kind of a detection and alert system that is actually different depending on what difficulty you play. So there's like five difficulty levels. The level of detection and how long they'll pursue you and all that stuff is affected by difficulty level. I played on very easy just to kind of blow through the game real quick. And I was actually more interested in reliving the cutscenes and codec calls. But I know that when you play on very easy, you don't even have to activate the nodes that they have. Each strut has like a a node that you have to log into to get your radar working But in very easy, you don't have to do that. The node is just like an options screen. So uh, I found that to be pretty interesting. It's very dynamic how your radar works and how the detection mode works and everything else based on your difficulty. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I found the nodes to be a little bit of an inconvenience, kind of silly sometimes where you would come into a level and, you know, you'd automatically be able to find it fairly easily. Yeah. 
from what I remember from the first game, you did not have to do that. Everything was automatically on radar. And, you know, for that reason, I just sort of preferred it. It just seemed like something that was kind of tacked on. And I don't know, in the grand scheme of things, didn't make a lot of sense as far as why you had to do that. I guess there was like a signal disruption or something from your radar that those nodes were um, blocking. I don't know. I, I didn't really catch the story behind it. Yeah, I kind of agree. I thought it was kind of unnecessary. And honestly, I kind of had a bad experience with it early on in the game where I I went to, you know, activate the node. And when it kind of faded to black and it was supposed to bring up like the computer screen, like I just saw like the Konami logo or whatever, like the game would essentially just reset. <laughs> wow. And I was like, I was like, wait a minute, is this just one of those weird Kojima things where he's you know <laughs> messing with me or, you know, <laughs> so I kind of like waited it out a bit and then it got to like the start menu. I'm like, okay, I think this is just messed up. So I had to like, reload my save, and I don't think I'd actually saved in a while, so it kind of taught me to save frequently, which yeah, there's really no reason not to do it. You can save at any time, but yeah, every time I activated a node after that, I was just like really paranoid that it just wouldn't work right, and it would just you know re- reset again. Well, I mean, I guess the good thing about it, you was probably saving before each node, and you can pretty much save at any time during the game, which is yeah. kind of a convenience, and I guess you know something we could talk about. Before you went into each strut, you could save the game. And a lot of times, unless you were on some sort of mission that was timed or um, specific part of the game between cutscenes, you could save and end up at the same spot. But I, I did find that like some of the saves, I would save and then die, and I wouldn't go back to that specific spot. It would kick me back a little bit further in the game. But you know, it, it typically wasn't bad, and uh, I did find that you know most of the save states in this game were were really good. Yeah, that's actually one thing. Even when I replayed the first game, it, it does that too. It just kind of has these checkpoints when you die. And I think that it was really ahead of its time for that because I think most games back then, if you die, mm-hmm. you have to reload a save and, you know, there's no checkpointing. So I thought that was a really cool feature. Absolutely. So as you go through the struts and the cores of the struts of the big shell, you will collect weapons and items. And one of the ways you kind of learn about this system is to find an AK-74 and a uniform of the Russians. So this teaches you the item system. You have the same kind of wheels of the first game where you pull the shoulder buttons and it brings up the menu. I love this system so much. Like, Yeah, it's good. You just kind of scroll through the the weapons on the right side and the items on the left-hand side. You can also quick deselect by tapping the button with most weapons and items. So very useful, very elegant system. And I like that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of tacked, I don't know how I feel about this being tacked on, but we do have a grip meter, kind of almost (laughs) like we're playing Shadow of the Colossus again. Again, I played on very easy, so I wasn't exactly stealthing my way around, hanging off ledges and stuff. I could just run up and knock dudes out and run past them. But if you really want to play the game the right way, you want to take advantage of the hanging and climbing systems, which, you know, in Metal Gear Solid fashion, if you know the series at all, you can kind of flip your character over a ledge and let him hang on it and uh, shimmy uh, across it. And in this one, you have a grip meter that decays as you go. So got to keep an eye on that and pick your spots to jump back up onto the walkway or whatever you're on. Big fan of the grip meter. I, I like this. You know, nice. Metal Gear Solid is a game that's known for stealth. And so I really like to be able to hang over a rail while an enemy goes past you. You can 
you know, scoot across the rail, you can move. But if you do that while an enemy is going past you, they will detect you. So you have to be still until they go past you, and then you flip back up onto the platform and you keep going. So I thought that was a really nice addition. With the first game, it seemed like one of the only stealth things that you could do was to get low and like climb under machines or boxes or stuff like that to kind of hide out, which you can do in this game too, but... With Metal Gear Solid 2, I thought the grip added a really cool feature to it, and I really enjoyed that. I, I didn't play it on very easy. I think I played it on the, the medium setting or whatever the normal setting is at the onset of the game. So I thought that was a pretty cool piece of platforming. What I didn't like were the jumps. The jumps sometimes sucked, especially with the main character, where it's not a jump, but it's like this <laughs> its like this handspring kind of thing that my daughter does in the backyard. Yeah, it's like a cartwheel almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, a cartwheel with cartwheel. no hands. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there was one part of the game, I think it's like right after you battle the Harrier, where you have to make that one jump across the platform because it's blown up. I probably did that jump about 20 times. It was quite frustrating and annoying. So if anything sucked for me, it was just the jump mechanic in this game. I was not a fan of it. But again, did like the grip gauge. I don't know if you guys noticed, but it said grip one on it. And I didn't know this until after finishing the game and doing some research. But you can do this thing in the game where you can collect dog tags from the enemies. And I don't even know if this is something that you can do on the PS2 version or something they added later. But um, you can collect dog tags from the enemies by pointing your gun at them and making them take them off, put them on the ground. And if you collect so many of them, it will increase your grip up to a point where you can even get infinite grip. So, uh, yeah, just something to kind of note and look out for. I had uh, read that you could do like pull-ups while you're using the grip and that if you do that enough times or whatever, it would increase your level. <laughs> but I tried it and it just, I don't know if I just didn't do it enough times or if I wasn't doing it right, but I could never get it to actually go up. Interesting. I have also heard that, but never tried it. So maybe it's an urban legend, but <laughs> and, uh, knowing Kojima, it's probably in there and there's just a right way to do it. Yeah. That would not be surprising as wacky as some of the stuff is in this game, including getting pissed on at one point of the game. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point. We could take all these diversions in this conversation because I wasn't even thinking about like how you can interact with the enemies in this game because... It's not just sneaking past them. You just mentioned you can hold them up so you can actually point your gun at them and they will act in interesting ways. Also, if you knock them out or tranquilize them, picking them up and then dropping them will make them drop items. And you can do this multiple times a lot of the time. So you'll get like a ration, which increases your health and you might get ammo. So I thought that was pretty cool. But there's also a bunch of other little things you can do like... You can shoot their radios and their radios won't work and they can't call for help kind of things like that. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, it's it's hard because the games kind of blend together, but I think you can like shoot their hands and make it harder for them to use their weapons. It's very precise what you can do. Uh, you can shoot them in the ding dong. That's always fun. <laughs> you can. You can shoot them in the ass if you want. It's really cool. <laughs> I remember when Metal Gear Solid 5 came out, there was actually a thread on a message board I was reading with like 
all the quote unquote cool stuff you could do in Metal Gear Solid Five, and there were so many comments that were like, "You could do that in MGS two. They had that in MGS two. You could do that in MGS two. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, this game is actually really ahead of its time with its like enemy AI and the way you can interact with it. Yeah. So let's get into the cutscenes and codec. They're not a gameplay element. You're basically getting a visual novel in the middle of your game, but in this sense, in the Metal Gear Solid universe, the codec calls are as much of a part of the game as anything else. So it's kind of important from a gameplay perspective, especially we were talking about the save system. So the codec calls, it's your team, it's Campbell and Rose who are kind of leading your quest and you can call them. And the cool part of this game that is very convenient is that if you forget what you're supposed to be doing, if you loaded a save after a week of not playing it or whatever, you can just call Campbell and he'll tell you where you need to go. You can sometimes call Snake and uh, he'll help you out. You eventually get other people on the codec. But you'll call Rose to save your game. And as it was mentioned, you can save anywhere you want, but you might get checkpointed somewhere. But all in all, it's a very good system and it's very uh, convenient and a good quality of life there as far as picking up where you left off. Before we get too far, did you guys notice that Campbell looks distinctly like Rambo's corporal in First Blood and <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Part Two. No I mean, they look exactly alike. It's pretty crazy, but I wonder if that uh, was purposeful and maybe an homage to those films. I think it is. I, I've, I remember reading somewhere about like the different references that Kojima's used in these games. I mean, obviously, Snake is you know Snake Plissken from Escape from New York or Escape from L.A. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, you know, I remember that being listed as one of them, the, the Colonel Troutman or whatever his name was from Troutman. Rambo. That's it. Yeah, Colonel yeah. Troutman. Awesome. Yeah. So we're actually kind of leaving out a major part of the gameplay, which is also a massive story element, which is that. There's two segments of the game, the tanker and the big shell. I guess there's no better place to get into kind of the controversy with this game when it came out and kind of what spawned me to ask that question of the month, which is a game that wasn't what you expected it to be. This game had a a huge controversy when it came out because you actually start the game as Solid Snake in the tanker portion of the game and then it pulls the ultimate switcheroo, a historic in video gaming switcheroo <laughs> when you come up that elevator and you're basically a Bishonen, right, Rich? You're a, <laughs> yes, you're I have that written down. Very, like beautiful boy type of character. And uh, this was very, very controversial at the time. So you play as Raiden for most of the game when you're in the big shell segment of the game, which is the bulk of the game for sure. Gameplay-wise and like control-wise, Raiden is a little more nimble than Snake, I would say, and he also does have that like rolling jump move. Later on, also, you get a sword, so there's some interesting differences between the two, but in general, your body movement is the same between both characters. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that seems um, very similar as far as, you know, your movements and, you know, stealth, crouching, crawling, backing up against the walls and stuff like that is very reminiscent of the first Metal Gear. Yeah. So the whole plot of the game, as Rich explained earlier, is that there's a new 
version of Metal Gear that has been stolen by Revolver and, you know, the cleanup effort of this tanker explosion is called the Big Shell, but it's really just a front. Yeah, like you said, it's a front for um, a new model of Metal Gear uh, that's being built. Not really a Metal Gear that has elements of being able to physically attack but it's a type of Metal Gear that attacks cyberspace and influences human beings, which is an interesting concept, especially when this game came out. It seems like the internet has been here forever, but I feel like with social media and things like that, those were fairly new ideas at the time, and I don't even know if Facebook was out around the time that this game was made. So uh, it's a very interesting concept and a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah, this game coming out in 01, Facebook was way later. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are pretty prescient in this game, but uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of the Metal Gear that that is like this aircraft carrier kind of thing towards the end of the game. I think it was Arsenal. I think Arsenal Gear or something. Metal Gear Arsenal or something like that. Thank you. So yeah, the cleanup effort is a front for Arsenal Gear. So yeah, this story, it's not convoluted or tricky, but it takes a lot of twists and turns the overall story is not complicated but the motivations behind all of the the different characters in the game get convoluted and i think that's probably where that comes in and why i say it's a little convoluted right yes because i'm trying to think about like the things that happened in the game and i'm struggling to even think if it's worth like talking about you know like the guy who helps you learn how to freeze the bombs for example that's an actually right. very interesting gameplay element but it's like this weird turn in the story that is just a vehicle to get you to fat man you know what i mean right i think like what you were talking about there um freezing the bombs it leads to a lot of like uh backtracking and stuff which i know like the first game had some of that and maybe the the Mm -hmm. other games do but i feel like it was a little much in this game because you just have to keep going back all these different struts and uh i feel like the environment wasn't really that interesting uh, and very kind of bland and repetitive yeah and the game has that same key card system that was around in the original Metal Gear game, not Metal Gear Solid, which I believe Metal Gear Solid had that key card system too. So it's kind of yeah. cool to see that aspect of the game come back and, you know, to find doors. And with that, it's almost like a Metroidvania type experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're going to be finding that door and you're going to be backtracking, but at what part of the game are you going to do that? But, um, One thing that I really did appreciate, and there were some frustrations mentioned by one of our members, Mr. Stubbs, who was playing on the tanker. He was having some trouble figuring out like which way to go, what was the correct path to take. But as Sean pointed out, stick with the game. Once you get to Big Shell, there's a map, and there's actually a marker on that map, too, that'll give you some direction as far as where you need to go. And I I thought that was a really nice touch to the game, especially during some of the sequences, which they're only a handful, but they are timed. And so you have to get to a certain spot before the timer runs out. Like Steven and Sean were mentioning... There are different like focal points in the game and additions to the story that kind of builds on the main story of the game. And there's these side missions that you're continually going on, which uh, in the case of the ex-police officer who is aboard the big shell that teaches you how to freeze the bombs and which leads up to this like really cool story about Fat Man and leads up to the boss battle with him. 
it adds to the overall narrative, but it's not a part of the bigger scope of the narrative. It's interesting, and it's really cool. There are all these like little threads to the story that uh, sort of unravel as you play throughout the game, uh, which uh, I quite enjoyed. Yeah, so what did you guys think about some of these boss battles? The Fat Man one tends to be a fan favorite, so... <laughs> Do you mean uh, Helmetless Darth Vader on roller skates and in a bomb suit? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the uh, the roller skates were a little much for me. Well, excuse me, roller blades, you yeah, know. Yeah, let let me clarify. That. I mean, it's a very 90s move. That's for me is almost where the game like story wise just kind of goes off the rails and gets really weird. I remember playing the first Metal Gear Solid game and I felt like it was pretty straightforward. All the enemies were fairly normal type of military enemies. There could be a little bit of science fiction added to it, but these characters in this game were odd. I mean, you know, you've got Fat Man in the bomb suit riding around on rollerblades. You got the girl who can't be hit by uh, bullets, and you got the vampire guy. I mean, it's all very supernatural, and um, yeah, it was very unexpected for me. I mean, you've got a character like Revolver Ocelot, who's just this guy who's awesome with revolvers, and that's pretty cool because it still has that really military feel, but these other characters are almost supernatural and 
you can speak to this. Is this something that continues throughout the series? Does Kojima just get more odd as he moves along, or is this sort of an anomaly? You know, it's funny. There's the Metal Gear Solid 1, 3, and 5 camp, and then there's the 2 and 4 camp. Okay. Uh, in general, like I like all the games, but there's some people who pick and choose their, their one. So that's kind of a cliche of the fan base. But I would say there's something tracking there where the more grounded in reality games get kind of lumped together, like one and three and five. And then the ones that are like way kooky off the wall stuff is two and four for sure. Okay. I think with Vamp, it's one of those <laughs> like... Fortune at least has this kind of, it's very melodramatic, but she has this kind of backstory and this reason that she Mm -hmm. thinks uh, is why she can't be hit. It turns out to be something different towards the end, you know, revealed at the end of the game. Right. It breaks that supernatural feel, but then you just got the other guy's stuff. I was wondering if they ever like explained what he was or why he was a vampire, but I, I didn't. I don't remember catching that. No, I didn't see anything either. Yeah, I don't think so. So yeah, there is always stuff that's not grounded in reality. I mean, even from the first game, like Psycho Mantis. True. I get what you're saying, Rich. Like Psycho Mantis is just so intense. And it's not that it's grounded in realism, but it's just like this really cool, bizarre supernatural where Vamp is just why is this guy a vampire? So it's like, I get, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. And it seems like the other two have backstories. So it it gives a little more credence. So yeah, that one just kind of stands out as a bit of an oddity. Yeah. Plus the damn guy just won't die. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what about some of the other boss battles? Now that we've talked about them, you do fight fortune, although it's just kind of a survive and don't die until the cutscene starts type of boss battle. Mm-hmm. And then you fight vamp later on, which is a wait, you know what? I forgot to ask in the fat man boss battle, were you tripped up by the fact that the last bomb was underneath his body? <laughs> Cause that's like a classic Kojima gag. It took me a couple of seconds, but I, f- I figured it out. It didn't detonate on me. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Me either. Cool. I had to kind of stop because I knew it was under him and I had to actually stop and pull up a walkthrough to figure out how to move. Bodies oh, okay. Because it's a little odd. Like in a lot of games, there's just like a button where you can do that. But with this one, you have to make sure that you're not holding any weapons to be able to do it. So I couldn't figure out how to drag the body. I could see on the radar that the bomb was right there. And I'm like, has to be under this guy. There's got to be some sort of odd twist to it because this game's just weird in itself. So that has to be the reason. But yeah, I did have to look at a walkthrough to figure out how to uh, do the controls for that. So what about the vamp boss fight? That was pretty interesting because there's a pit of special water that like, if you fall into it, you'll drown automatically. I forget the exact explanation for that. I think it was something to do with like the oxygen level and it has no buoyancy or something like that, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, that's where I would use the grip. And then before he would find me, I would just kind of flip over the rail as he's trying to swing and hit him from behind. Get in a few blows like that. And uh, definitely Claymores were my friend in that battle. 
similar to uh, what you would do in the Fat Man battle as well. You know, you could stun them until you could get some good blows in. With Fat Man, it was shooting him in the head. That was his vulnerable spot. And if you could daze him, then um, you could certainly have an opportunity to shoot him. I thought the vamp battle was much, much easier. I probably had a lot more problems with Fat Man as far as trying to aim and, and do that sort of thing. Awesome. Were there any other ones besides the final boss? Well, you have to fight all those metal gears at one point when you're yeah. you're on top of arsenal gear and even on very easy that's a little <laughs> a little bit of a pain in the ass. So I was wondering yeah. was it hard on the normal difficulties? It, it was a little challenging, yeah. What difficulty did you play, yeah. Steven? Yeah, I just played the normal default, whatever. Oh, okay. Difficulty. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't put it on like super hard, whatever it's called, a European mode or whatever, where you <laughs> don't even have radar and you, <laughs> and you uh, get a game over if you just get seen by an enemy or something. Yeah. I didn't do that. Yeah, that was my favorite boss battle of all of them. Oh, cool. Once you kind of figured out the pattern and realizing that you had to get into first-person mode and lock on and fire quickly in between rounds, it got a little easier. I probably game over it about three times right there, but... You know, I feel like gaming over three times is not excessive, and I don't mind that as far as trying to learn a battle. So yeah, that was my favorite by far. The vamp battle, like I said, wasn't hard, and the fat man battle was more annoying just to get him down than anything. And then uh, the fortune battle was just, it wasn't really a battle at all, just basically flipping from side to side and dodging until the cutscene started. So I felt like that was probably the best boss battle in the game. I don't know if I have a particular favorite boss battle. I actually like the Fat Man battle because it took a little bit of skill, which I don't have a lot of. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely don't. Because he's wearing this bomb suit with the high collar. And if you want to go the tranquilizer route, you have to shoot him in the head when he uh, gets like winded or kind of stumbles a little bit every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And that's when you have an opening to hit him. I felt like that took a little bit of skill all while he's planting bombs that you have to run around and freeze. So it it was a pretty dynamic boss battle, more dynamic than vamp. Even I thought, because vamp just, you know, he has his patterns and he kind of floats around the room and then comes at you. But like, I just felt like you were doing more stuff in the fat man battle if that makes sense yeah absolutely and uh one we didn't mention was the uh harrier battle as well that's out on the uh platform yeah Yeah, that was really cool yeah i like that one as well probably second favorite yeah an homage to the first game perhaps very similar Mm -hmm. boss battle in that if i had to pick one uh, i'd probably also go with fat man um you know, the boss fights in Metal Gear games are always like a highlight. That's one of the things that the series is known for. And uh, yeah. I, I feel like they were a little comparatively weaker in this game compared to one and three. Um, yeah. Just in my opinion, you know, I, there was nothing that really stood out to me on the same level as like a Psycho Mantis or like the end from three or like the boss from three. But that's not to say that they're bad, just to me, not quite on that same level, in my opinion. We should say, I was actually about to say that there's no sniper boss battle, but there actually kind of is. Mm -hmm. There's a segment where you have to guide Emma across these kind of floating barriers that you can't walk on, but she can because she's uh, smaller than you, let's say. But she's also injured, so she's walking very slow and you have to cover her with sniper fire. It's not 
a boss battle per se, but it is kind of like the sniper wolf fight from MGS1 or the end fight from MGS3. And that's also where <laughs> where Vamp kills Emma. Spoilers. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was a shocker. That was a that was a shocking scene in the game. Yeah, that caught me by surprise. I was like, did I do something wrong? Could I have done something better to possibly yeah, save? Yeah, I kind of thought that maybe I'd screwed it up and uh, I was getting like a game over cinematic or something. But turns out that's just the, how the story goes. Yep, and then we get some incest. So, there you go. Was, yeah. It's weird. I had the th- <laughs> I probably shouldn't even say this, but I had the thought that something else Kojima predicted 20 years ago was uh, where internet porn is now. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to go into that part of it, but that's a really uncomfortable kind of <laughs> kind of dynamic there and a little the confession that Otacon makes, you know, so. Yeah. And then just start just living through a fucking parrot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Snake, answer me. Snake. Snake. All right. So let's jump into the graphics and environments in this game. So this game being on PlayStation 2 was obviously a major leap over the first game being on the PS1. And one thing I really remember was people being blown away by the attention to detail on the graphics and the things you could do, like when you're in the tanker segment, you can actually go into first person and you could look at the magazines. You can't like read them, but it's kind of cool how you can like kick them around and you could see there's like details to them. Uh, I remember like shooting the bottles on the bar and behind the bar was a big deal. These are all very realistic for the time and still hold up in a way that I don't know if I was expecting, like still look pretty great. And then there's the things like posters in the lockers and stuff like that. It's kind of weird because the shell segment and even the ship tanker segment to a certain extent are these very like sanitary environments are very clean not in a sci-fi way but just in a you know utilitarian way i find that each strut was interesting enough but it wasn't like metal gear solid one where there's like specifically defined like you knew you were in a different area of the game in this game you just felt like okay i'm on a different strut it looks a little bit different things are arranged different ways some of them had very unique elements but yeah i felt like the whole game taking place in this one big shell facility made it feel a little bit more generic than the first game yeah i think i i said something similar when we were t- I was talking about like the backtracking but <clears throat> I thought the uh, a lot of the plant kind of looked samey and just a, a little generic and I, I do appreciate that there were some uh, you know like little details in the environment and that was always cool to see but I think just overall the, the environment was a little bland to me I agree with that um, although I did like the environment of the big shell a lot more than I liked the tanker it did seem that like different parts of the shell had uh, different purposes and I thought that was neat. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like that you had to sort of remember where some of the doors were and, you know, where you might come out. I did like there were secrets in the game where you can crawl on the ground and make your way through vents that, you know, you might not normally see to get special items. And I did think that was cool. Uh, as far as the color palette of this game, uh, it's 
fairly typical and normal for Metal Gear games as I've seen and you know someone else could speak to this in later games but it's that sort of dark color palette uh, lots of grays greens browns it, it feels very like military very institutional and, and drab which is what you would expect being on a tanker one thing that we touched on a little bit earlier was um, the main character and this is shown in the look that he has um, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. We first talked about this sort of look when we talked about Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Yeah. And with that game, it really works because you've got this Dracula character with this sort of long hair. You know, when you've looked at classic interpretations of what Dracula looked like, other than the sort of slicked back Widow Peaks hair... There is that sort of long flowing hair. There is that feminine look because Dracula is a very romantic character. But I don't know. With this character, it seemed a really odd and mismatched and disjointed from the rest of the characters in the game. And it just really stood out. And I did not care for it. It was really distracting. When I play a game, I like to get immersed in the game. But with this guy, I felt it was silly, even to the point of there are moments in the game where a guy grabs your dick to see if you're a girl or not. I don't know. It was just weird, man. <laughs> there, there's a few of those moments in the game, actually. Yeah, there's theories behind this, obviously. Um, one of the things that people say about this game is that the game is actually a meta like simulation where like Raiden is actually you. Like Raiden is this stand-in for the player in a meta way, not just in a way like <laughs> I'm controlling Mario on the screen kind of thing. It's kind of hard to explain, and <laughs> I don't know. It's it's very like postmodern. Steven, do you have any like further thoughts on this? I've heard theories like that that the whole game is supposedly a uh, simulation. I, I, I don't know how much this game gets uh, mentioned in sequels or I guess 4 um, would be the only one that chronologically comes after 2. I mean, I'm assuming the events here are real and that it's not like a simulation, but um, but they do kind of allude to things like that and uh, there's a lot of that like fourth wall breaking stuff especially when you're talking with like the AIs at the end where it's kind of unclear if they're talking to the character or they're talking to the player. Um, yes. It's weird, and that's the thing is what makes this game kind of hard to uh, to follow sometimes. Yeah, and I, I felt like they were kind of creating this bridge between the uh, Metal Gear VR missions, which is on the PS1, and sort of that type of game where every situation is a, a VR scenario. Yeah, And so it's almost like it's playing off that, whereas your player character learned everything that they did from those VR missions, which you had played on the PS one and that they sort of tied it in that way. I could be wrong, but uh, no, that, that's I've actually kind of what gave me the feeling of, yeah. And they actually play footage of metal yeah. gear solid VR missions when, uh, when Raiden is explaining his training. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a very sound theory that I've actually heard of many times. I typically have very sound theories. <laughs> <laughs> awesome you guys want to get into the music a little bit and the sounds in the game yeah definitely so we have the main theme of metal gear it's very symphonic everybody knows it you know dun, 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 dun. like that's from the first game and it's carried over here there's variations of it beyond the metal gear solid stuff which is amazing 
the music is very good in this game. There's intense battle themes. There's tranquil menu music and stuff like that. Like everything's appropriate and everything's great. But I don't I don't know like the names of tracks or anything. It just seemed like a lot of reusing stuff from the first game, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the music is very similar to the first game. It's nothing that I would go out and want to purchase. Nothing groundbreaking. It's very adequate, as we say a lot of times. As far as the sounds go, uh, one of the things I really did like about this game is was a callback to the first game, uh, which was how when you die, people scream, snake, snake, you know, and I love yeah. that. I think that's really, really cool. And it even had the same uh, sound effect like the, you know what I'm talking about? Like when the uh, Metal yeah. Gear comes across the screen, I really did like that callback and I thought that was really cool. I thought the sounds were awesome in the game. You know, how you could rap against walls, uh, the sounds of the weapons and, you know, movement and things like that. When you would step in different areas, uh, the sound would change. So I thought all of that was handled really well. But the music was just, you know, just adequate, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the music. I um, kind of like you said, it's, um, it was good and it fit, you know, the different parts of the game where it was used hearing some of it in the game and thinking, wow, this sounds pretty cool, but it, it's not something that I remember after the fact. Other than, you know, you talked, mentioned like the sort of opening main theme. And I remember at one point I just kind of left the game on, um, like I turned it on and was going to play it in a few minutes, but the, that opening cinematic was just kind of running over and over. And I kept hearing that theme and I was like, well, that's a really cool theme. And it's really stood out to me. And it's funny you mentioned that um, it sounded like they reused a lot from the first game, but I, I watched the Did You Know Gaming video for this game, and uh, you mentioned the name of the composer. I, I, I don't remember it offhand, but Kojima, um, I think, just was just a fan of his work and uh, sent him the music, and he just made some of these orchestral uh, versions of what was there, and that's, you know, that got used in the game. But uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Was that Harry Gregson Williams? Or yeah, that, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to get into final thoughts. And here's where I'm going to unload the like main point of this game, which is that at the end of the game, it is revealed that Campbell and Rose are actually this AI that is trying to basically control humanity and what they're trying to prevent. And you got to remember, this is coming from 2001. Like Rich was saying, this was before social media. The, the internet existed, of course, but you know we didn't have the kind of social media that we have today. And uh, I want to read a passage. Now, this is right on Wikipedia. It's highlighted as one of the passages from the final codec call. And I've watched, there's a few really good YouTube videos on the ending of Middle Gear Solid 2 and just how kind of crazy it is with how prescient it was and how predicting of the future that it was. So this is uh, a quote from Colonel N. Rose, I believe Colonel speaks the first part. He says, in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all of its triteness, never fading away, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretations, and slander. All this junk data preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate. It will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards development of convenient half-truths. 
everyone withdraws into their own small gated community, afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, seeking whatever quote-unquote truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is engulfed in quote-unquote truth, and this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. So I think the first half of that quote is like dead on the money. There's this kind of situation we have now. I mean, I know for me, I'll just speak for myself. I waste so much time on social media. We hear this word content a lot. And when you think about it, what vast majority of the content that is produced is like very worthless, you know, like people just saying what they ate for breakfast on Twitter or whatever, putting a picture of your cat on Instagram. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying like the point that they were making in 2001 was that this would be happening. And uh, I think that's kind of cool. And a lot of other people do too. Yeah. What are you guys' thoughts on this? I basically didn't uh, follow that conversation at all when I was uh, playing the game. Um, But I kind of, I knew there was something there. So I kind of went back. I watched some of these videos you were talking about and just kind of explaining it. And it's a rabbit hole you can go down. I feel like if you really wanted to, it could be like a spec ops the line amount of like (laughs) note taking, you know, if you remember uh, what that looked like. And, uh, you know, and I think the point is that before the digital age information was like like curated for us, you know, through news outlets or textbooks, you know, we're kind of, I guess, told what we, I don't want to really say it this way, but told what we were needed to be told, I guess, because, you know, it's like who, who decides that. And I think that's kind of the point of trying to stop the AI was that they want to filter out all the junk, but then at the same time, they're going to essentially shape humanity's sort of like cultural evolution to, you know, what they want and shape history the way in the direction they want. And, And uh, it's kind of like, who's to decide how that should be, you know, uh, we should kind of shape our own evolution. But at the same time, I think it's kind of right that there is just so much junk. And a lot of what was said is, I feel like is like, yeah, coming true. Absolutely. Not just coming true is true. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's here. Yeah. yeah, But thinking about when this game came out, it it has a very Orwellian feel to it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the major message that, uh, I feel like Kojima is trying to get across is that, and uh, I think he really succeeds in it. It's really good. It's really, really eye-opening, especially for someone like me who's playing the game for the first time and looking back, you know, like, damn, this came out before social media. He nailed it. Kojima Damas, as I'll call him, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's eerie to go and play this game. Now, I will say, I, I think Kojima gets on his soapbox a little too much, especially at the end of this game and uh, tries to go off on several different types of tangents where I feel like if he would have just stuck with that, the game would have a lot more meaning. And uh, I think that that is really sort of the overall theme of this. The major Metal Gear, who has no destructive powers whatsoever as far as armaments, its destructive power is creating this misleading information and manipulating the internet and manipulating technology. That is the vehicle that everyone wants, right? It's not these armored vehicles who end up just protecting it. 
it is that piece of equipment that will wipe out the rest of the world is this thing that creates misinformation and uh, has control over other technology. That's a big statement and uh, scary, especially where we're at right now and possibly the direction we're headed. Yeah. One of these videos I watched said, like, let's just hope Kojima wasn't right with Death Stranding. Which I, was, yeah. <laughs> I haven't played that yet, so please don't ruin that one for me. <laughs> no, I haven't played it either, but I know it's just like this post-apocalyptic world you don't want to live in. So it was <laughs> yeah. just kind of funny, that comment. Cool. So I think we're about ready to wrap up. I'm glad I was able to kind of coherently explain that scene. So... <laughs> Let's go into our final thoughts. Steven, if you want to talk about the final boss battle, that's fine. If not, just go right into your final thoughts. Yeah, overall, I'd say I uh, enjoyed the game uh, quite a bit. I think, you know, I, I posted on Twitter that it was like by far my least favorite of the first three. And it's still my least favorite. But I think after I kind of went down the rabbit hole just a little bit, flight researching like a lot of the meaning and, you know, like what this whole like ending uh, conversation is really about it. You know, I can really appreciate it a lot more for what it was, you know, saying and, you know, the, the message it was trying to get across because of just how relatable it is and how, you know, it's just almost like prophetic, you know, uh, just pretty much just where we're at in society now and uh, just how far ahead of its time it was for that. There were some kind of odd things I thought drug it down and I mentioned sort of like the backtracking. I also thought the um they would do this weird thing in cutscenes where they would be talking and then all of a sudden like let's just switch to nano communications just even though we're standing like five feet apart. Yeah. You know, with this kind of like thinly veiled excuse of like somebody could be listening in, but I'm still thinking they're still talking. People can still hear you, right? I don't I don't really get it. And to me it almost seemed like a cheap way to just sort of not animate the dialogue and just kind of do a kind of a bland codec call. I don't remember the other games doing that, so I thought that was uh, almost made the game seem a little rushed to me. But like I said before, I've kind of gotten more used to all the uh, all the wordiness, and uh, you know, it didn't bother me too much. But you know, I just something that kind of struck me as odd. But uh, yeah, overall, I'd say uh, I, I enjoyed my time with it. I'm glad I revisited it, and uh, you know, just looking forward to going through the rest of the series. I still haven't even played five at all, and I've heard a lot of good things, so I want to get to that eventually. Cool. I think you would probably like five. So you haven't played yet four and five, right? I played four years ago, but it's one I need to revisit because I don't have like a good memory of it, kind of like with three. Yeah. But I appreciated three much more on a replay. So I want to replay that one. And I actually did play Ground Zeroes um, when that oh, came okay. out, which was kind of like, you know, kind of like a glorified demo, but I enjoyed it for what it was. And I'm assuming like mechanics are kind of similar. Um, yeah. But I, I like what, what they had going on. And so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to playing five sometime. Awesome. Rich, final thoughts, final boss, whatever you want. Yeah, um, I'll uh, start off talking about the final boss for just a minute. Very underwhelming fight. Not difficult at all. Just sort of a last showdown and quite disappointing thinking about who you're battling in that final fight and how much damage he does to a lot of the other characters in the game. You would think it would be something a lot more intricate. It just felt a bit tacked on and something that seemed quote necessary to finish the game. For me, the final boss battle was the battles against the uh, Metal Gear Rays. That's fair. Yeah, that was my favorite boss battle and probably the most difficult one in the game. I really appreciate this game a lot, but honestly, I don't love it 
like I do the first Metal Gear Solid game. That's a hard follow, especially for someone like me. But I do appreciate a lot of the things in this game. I like the gameplay a lot. It's very well done. One of my biggest gripes is I feel like there are a lot more cutscenes and there's actual gameplay. I felt like 70%, if not more, of this game was cutscenes. Uh, I think I posted on the RF Generation thread, Hello Exposition. That was at the very beginning of the game, and I thought, well, you know, it's kind of explaining the game. Maybe this will taper off a little bit. But to me, it just felt like Kojima just constantly on his soapbox. And I like the overall message. Like I said, it's really cool with this foretelling of the future. It makes you feel like really eerie inside. But I I feel like that there's so many messages that he tries to bring across at the end that it just gets convoluted and he kind of gets away from that. Honestly, the ending is over 45 minutes worth of cutscenes. I had to walk away at one point because I couldn't get to a save point. And my wife's like, I need some help down here with the kids. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to find a save point, but you know what? I'm just going to walk away from this game and just let it go where it goes. And I'm going to go downstairs and watch it on my phone. And that's what I ended up doing and just fast forwarding through it on the actual game. Yeah, just... um really frustrating. But like I said, I'm really, really happy that I played this game. I enjoyed my time with it. And at its core, it's a Metal Gear Solid game and it's fun. And uh, those core gameplay mechanics and values are still in this game, even though you're not playing as Solid Snake. And I imagine when people played this game when it first came out, they were super disappointed that they weren't playing as Snake. But I can't say that I could echo that feeling. I enjoyed playing with Raiden and, you know, playing as a new character and having Snake sort of in the background. I thought that was a really cool touch and uh, something I could definitely appreciate. Awesome. Well, yeah, this <laughs> this has been a great conversation. As rocky as it was, this game <laughs> is is very intricate and... There's a lot of stuff going on. We could have done three hours on just the story alone. Um, I've watched two and a half hour long YouTube videos on this game, just, you know, analyzing the main character kind of thing. You can go so deep on this stuff, but at the end of the day, it is a video game and all the philosophical stuff, you got to put it aside at a certain point and say, is it worth playing? I will say within the series in general, I was surprised that the gameplay to codec and cutscene ratio was higher than I remembered. I was feeling like I would have to sit through a lot of long cutscenes and codec calls and the final one being very long notwithstanding. I totally understand that. It wasn't nearly as bad as I remembered or thought it would be. And I would say like it's almost like 70-30, like 70% gameplay, 30% cutscenes. Yeah, I don't agree. But <laughs> I might be aiming a little high there. And maybe, maybe you were 40. scrolling through it because you had played it before. But no, nah, I, I felt like this game was way more than that. Yeah, I felt like I was either on a cutscene or being interrupted constantly by the codec ringing and, and checking it. And that's just me. I mean, just playing a game for the first time, wanting to read everything that pops up. Interesting. Well, don't play Metal Gear Solid 4. (laughs) 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 That one's infamous for having like 10% gameplay, 90% cutscene. It's like, I mean, and I'm just shooting numbers from the hip, but it's, uh, it's really bad. So anyway, 
for me, <laughs> for me, the uh, cutscenes and codex were not excessive. I enjoyed them. I thought the voice acting was really good. So I, I guess I just got into it. So I like this game a lot. As far as within the series, it's funny. We were ranking them on Twitter, some of us. So I didn't say what my ranking would be, but it would probably be like five, one, three, two, four. So <laughs> it's not ranking very high in general, like it overall for me in the series. However, a lesser Metal Gear Solid game is still better than 99% of <laughs> other games that are out there, at least, you know, to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I once heard it said that like, the Pixies worst album is still better than most bands best album. It's just like kind of that kind of thing with MGS two. It's definitely not a good place to start. If you've never played the series, definitely start with, you know, one would be ideal, Mm -hmm. but yeah, two is definitely worth playing. It's cool to play and then go down the analysis rabbit hole, like we were saying. But if not, like I said before, it's not a very long game, uh, especially if you play, normal or lower on the difficulty scale and you're not trying to really challenge yourself for a perfect stealth run so without a ton of trial and error it's only about a 12 to 15 hour game and uh worth your time for looking at what a mainstream AAA game looked like in 2001 which is you know this game is very experimental for its time and where we have our AAA gaming now is very like by the numbers and there's a lot of complaints that you know there's not a lot of experimental stories or innovation which i'm sure there is this is just a very general statement to make but to look at something like this from 2001 is kind of crazy that this game came out and uh yeah i like it a lot interesting replaying it with you guys interesting trying to hash out a conversation on it very challenging (laughs) very challenging (laughs) so absolutely um yeah, that's it. You want to talk about the uh, upcoming games? You got July, so go for it. Yeah, uh, join us in July and play Sky Blazer on the Super Nintendo. This is a, I would say, not so well-known, although very well-known in the collector's community as far as price goes, platforming game. You know, it has some really cool elements to it. Steven, I know you've played this before, right? Yeah, I played this a few years ago um, for the first time. I was kind of on a Super Nintendo kick, and this is one I had heard about. I had in my collection, so I played it, and uh, I I really enjoyed this game. I would kind of rank it amongst one of my favorite platformers, just period. Yeah, I would say it has elements of maybe Mega Man and Ninja Gaiden, uh, as far as you know, being able to wall crawl and stuff like that, added to some pretty cool graphics and really awesome boss battles. It's a very short game, so we're not checkpointing any of it. It's the type of game that you can probably beat in one or two sittings. So uh, yeah, uh, should be very short, nice little summer game, and implore everyone to uh, check it out and play along with us this July. And then, Sean, you will be doing the playthrough in August, so I'll let you talk about that one. Yeah, so in August, we're going to play Phantom Dust, which was originally released on the original Xbox, and I will be playing it on my modded system, although I do own a physical copy of this game. 
It's a game I admittedly don't know a ton about it. They were actually going to remake it, but the remake got canceled. So we'll be playing the original and for now only version of the game. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because it's something I've had on the shelf for a while. I understand it has some card like CCG elements and Mm -hmm. looks very interesting and looks like could be a game that I end up loving. That was not what I expected, but I honestly (laughs) don't know what to expect. So we shall see. I actually start playing that very soon here so I can start checkpointing it. So yeah, Phantom Dust on the original Xbox for August. Steven, thank you so much for joining us here, for coming back on the show. Uh, Please plug any social media. Please tell people about your YouTube channel, where you put all your music and all that stuff. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's been uh, too long and uh, glad glad to be back, back in the saddle for a little while. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at TheDisposedHero. I'm also on YouTube. It's Disposed Hero VGM. I make mostly metal style covers of video game music. And you can also find Steven on the front page at RF Generation where he posts his videos as well. Yeah, I used to write articles and now I just do low effort uh, reposting my videos. (laughs) Hey, all the efforts in making the videos. So I appreciate (laughs) you staying on and posting those because it uh, puts some really interesting and cool content on our front page. do it for another episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to disposed hero for joining our discussion and to all of our participants in july we're checking out a rare gem on the super nes skyblazer is an action platformer with amazing graphics and a steep difficulty curve are you up to the challenge Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join this playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. 
fresh meat. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame, 